Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I am here today with Richard Porter. Hi, Richard. Hello. <laughs> Can you tell the audience sort of who you are and what you do, if that's possible? Uh, who am I? I don't know. Well, I, I mean, you've said my name. I won't repeat that. <laughs> um, but yes, my name is Richard. I am a writer. I mostly write about cars. And that is what I have done for a living for two, more than 20 years now. Um, and I suppose the biggest, most time consuming thing I've ever done, which just swallowed a huge chunk of, of my career to date was that I was the script editor on Top Gear from 2002 until, uh, 2015 and then did a little bit of that on the grand tour as well. So, um, for, uh, God, uh, how long now? Like, oh, well, sort of 17 years or something. I, uh, yeah, a lot of how I, and the living was by writing low quality jokes for <laughs> three people on the television who you might recognize. Uh, but I've also been, um, a writer for Evo magazine for longer than I ever worked on Top Gear. Cause I got that. I, I, I started doing stuff for Evo before I started working on Top Gear. And then I became a columnist for Evo, uh, 17 years ago. So I'm apparently I'm, I'm Evo's longest serving columnist. Which is That's a terrible it. reflection on Evo magazine. <laughs> they really should bug their ideas up because if you look at some of the people they've had doing columns for them, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a mighty collection of writers. You know, Russell Bulgin used to do a column for them. Chris Harris done a column for them. Peter Dron, Tiffany Dell. You know, they've had some good, good big names, but yeah. the, what all of those big names didn't have, um, necessarily was just my sort of bloody mindedness to stick around. <laughs> Uh, in the face of obvious apathy from readers and staff alike. So, you know. It's clearly worked. 
Yeah, it's I, I. There's only uh, I was going to say there's only once I thought I was going to be sacked. That's not true. There was once when pressure was brought to bear on Harry Metcalf back when he mm. was still his baby. Oh, twice, in fact, because once um, I wrote a column about private number plates and said how I hated them and how they were awful, <laughs> and um, forgetting that there are a lot of private number plate agencies advertised in the back of Evo, and oh, they nice. all uh, got well, some of them got a bit cross, <laughs> and and um, so I think there was commercial pressure on Harry going, "Why are you employing this guy when he's just saying idiotic <laughs> things that are commercially damaging to the magazine?" And bless him, Harry said, "Look." It's the whole point of a columnist is to say things that get people riled up a little bit sometimes. So, no, I'm not going to do anything about that. And then uh, another occasion, I, <laughs> I'm not sure I was even a columnist. Though. I think I was just doing other stuff for them. I was sub-editing and, and, and doing the odd feature or whatever. I I wrote on Sniff Petrol. The other bit I forgot to say in my biog at the top of this is that I, for many years I've had a website called sniffpetrol.com, which is a sort of um, satirical car site. But I wrote a story. I wrote a story on Sniff Petrol about how Auto Express, owned by the same publishing house as Evo at this point, was in a crisis because the lorry carrying all of their exclamation marks had overturned <laughs> on the motorway before it could deliver some new exclamation marks to Auto Express, which people who've ever seen that magazine will know. Not quite so much these days, but back back. 20, nearly 20 years ago, they did enjoy an exclamation mark in a headline and indeed in an article. And, um, and, and I wrote this, but I, w- what sent this over the edge from the point of view of getting me in trouble was that, um, the, 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 I think it was the line, the headline. I got, I got become obsessed at this point on Sniff Petrol with, with needlessly alliterating headlines, which was in itself a little bit of a parody of Auto Express. And so the headline on this piece was, um, something like piss poor punctuation. No, sorry, piss poor publication in punctuation palaver. And, <laughs> The idea that somebody who works ultimately for the same publisher, Dennis Publishing, would describe a sister title as piss poor was apparently not, <laughs> didn't go down very well at Dennis Publishing headquarters, which thankfully wasn't where Evo were based. Evo have always been based in a different place. So uh, the editor-in-chief got in touch with Harry and went, you've got to get rid of this guy. He's that, That's just not on. And Harry went... <laughs> Not going to do that. <laughs> Sorry, but no, because I think secretly Harry quite enjoyed piling yeah. up. The, the it must be great having it. someone in the office that's saying all these things that you're like, I'd quite like to write that, but I'm not allowed. Well, yeah, this was how um, I started Sniff Petrol because I had a bit of um, spare time and I didn't tell anyone that I was doing it and not that I think that anyone particularly cared. But then it started to become seen in the car industry and it's always been you know a little bit of an in gaggy sort of thing i guess and so people in the car industry and the, and the car media were probably some of the first people to start reading it and but i i always kept stum never admitted it was me mm. never put my name on it but then i somehow i don't know how um harry because he's a wise man and the evo people generally quite clever sorts and they they figured it out and harry rang me one day because i was only a freelancer i used to go up to the office in deadline week and help sub edit the issue and stuff so i wasn't there all the time and i wasn't a staffer he just rang me out of the blue and just went um are you are you sniff petrol and i had to go <laughs> um yes and i just thought oh, this is it. i'm sacked now they won't be they won't be using my services anymore and he just went oh it's very good, and um, and and then that led to me the first page I had in the Mac. I think was a sort of sniff petrol alike kind of mock news page, which got 
a couple of a couple of times that that got a bit of a spicy reaction from people and i think <laughs> although it was quite watered down compared to the website because there was no swearing and stuff but i think that yeah that harry and and the other guys at evo sort of quite liked having the, the sort of it felt like they they could um you know they could they could have the satisfaction of knowing who was behind it and that he was yeah. someone who worked for them and lots of other people didn't know um it then came horribly unstuck though in a way because uh russell bulgin i've already mentioned who's one of my favorite Car writers, one of my favorite mm. writers in general. You know, his, his use of language was superb. And, uh, he was writing up, he was writing for Evo actually, I think up until his death. He died in, I will go about 2003, I guess, 2004, something like that. And, um, uh, he was at an event with Harry and he said, Hey, Harry, have you seen this sniff patchwork thing? Do you know who's behind it? And Harry kind of tapped his nose conspiratorially and went, Oh, well, I couldn't possibly say. And I gather that Bulgin assumed that it was in fact coming from the Evo office direct. But then I got an anonymous message from someone that said, um, you know, Russell Bulgin doesn't like your website, which turned out not to be true, apparently. But I don't know why they were doing that. They said, Russell Bulgin doesn't like your website. And I was gutted. I was like, oh, God, because I really like Russell Bulgin's yeah. work. I, was, I can't believe he doesn't like my website. So almost as a kind of childish attempt to smoke him out, I wrote a story about him, which again was a sort of grammar-based one because it was – uh, one of the things I didn't like about Bulgin's writing, one of the few things, was that he used to do a thing which is very prevalent in the car industry and car companies themselves. They don't use the definite article when they're talking about cars. So people at Ford, if you say, so how's um, how's your small small hatchback doing? They'll go, oh, Fiesta's doing great business for us at the moment. I mean, the thing about Fiesta is a lot of people who buy Fiesta, they and you go, it's the Fiesta. Everyone in the real world says <laughs> the Fiesta. Why would you do this? But it's very, very commonplace in the car industry and and Belgian used to do it sometimes in his writing and I always thought don't, don't do that mate just don't don't do it so I I wrote an article on Sniff Petrol saying that Russell Belgian had found the definite article down the back of his sofa and it was a little bit cheeky well it was very cheeky but really it was I was hoping he'd email me and go you absolute bastard and then I'd be yeah, able yeah. to go I love you you're brilliant <laughs> and then we'd become best friends that was the 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 subtext Same. behind it and uh, that didn't happen. What happened was um, he saw it and he rang Harry. Bear in mind, he thinks that, that Sniff Petrol is written yeah. by the Evo team and said, I didn't realise you all thought I was a twat. Or it might have even been a stronger word than that, I think. And then once again, I get a phone call from Harry out of the blue. Although actually it's because Harry was in London at a meeting when he got the call and I was in the Evo office working and he he rang me and went, um, there's a bit of a problem. <laughs> Would you be able to take that story about Russell down? Because he's very angry about it. And I went, oh, shit. And then he said, but look, maybe you could make amends. Maybe you could email him and say, sorry. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So he gave me Russell's email address. I emailed him and I said, look, you know, I'm really sorry. I'll be honest, I'm a massive fan of your work. I was just being a dick and trying trying to attract your attention basically and, I, and i'm sorry it's done it in completely the wrong way i've taken the story down it will it will never reappear and and i hope that you know we can be i don't think i said i hope we can be friends that would be a bit weird but i probably meant it uh and i didn't hear back i never heard back and that was it and then he died not long afterwards oh, and no. I, was, I was sort of racked with with guilt and and also regret so yeah you really that did was the, tear him down <laughs> yeah well i mean it was 
That was, it was probably one of the least good bits of, of the history of my website was actually pissing off somebody who was a bit of a hero of mine. It's a really stupid way to go about it. It's like kids at school, you know, it's like you're at school, there's a girl you fancied. So to make it clear that you fancied her, you'd be absolutely horrible to her. And it's yeah. like, there's no logic to that. That was what I did with the legendary car writer Russell Belgium in a completely cack-handed way. So, I guess that, um, that's sort of the way that English people work. Or the people from the UK compared to yes. Americans. We're like, no, yes. if you want to talk to someone, you get really, really, really drunk and then you don't talk to them. Whereas Americans are like, hey, like middle of the day in Starbucks, can I get your yeah. number? I think you're hot. Yeah, yeah. That's it. But then also, I suppose, and I think things have changed now. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm far too old to understand this, but I think, I, they just I think each other. The, the date culture in the US is different, isn't it? A date is a casual and throwaway thing. You can go on one date with somebody and it's kind of, if it doesn't work, it's no harm, no foul. And it took the advent of um, uh, of Tinder and things here to make that happen. Otherwise, Possibly. it's like going on a date with someone here, really, it was then sort of socially awkward to back out of it. And you probably, there's, yeah. there's hundreds of people in Britain who are married because they didn't have, <laughs> they didn't want to upset the apple cart with the social awkwardness of saying, I don't think we actually get on very well. Yeah, and now we have three children. Uh, (laughs) I'm not speaking personally, by the way, because my wife's American. So you know, we we kind of have a a sort of um, transatlantic. I always thought that was the way of like if someone wants to ask out your sister, obviously they would just ask out your sister. They would never ask you if they could ask out your sister. But in my eyes, it was like you can ask out my sister, but you have to marry them. That's that's like it. There's no like in between. Yes, I. I mean, I have this. I have a daughter, and she's just about to turn three, so it's a while to go yet. But it does cross my mind that the first time that <laughs> she assumes she wants to bring boys home, I don't know. She might not, and then that solves that problem. I don't know, but I'd probably still. It's like it's a, another person who wants to become the most important thing in their yeah. lives. No, I'm sorry, that's a dad's job or a mum's job. Yeah, and it's, it's it's one of those things where you said as a, as a parent, you kind of go, eh, "Can't foresee this happening." Oh shit, it's just happened because time goes really fast. <laughs> and uh, no, here I am saying play, something at her play way. Play out all these scenarios in your head of ways that you can just be like that really cool but slightly scary dad. Yeah, and it's never going to happen because <laughs> it's like, right, yeah, right. So I have two children, and the oldest one is only six, and it's like, but he's you know he's he's been around for enough years now that I've kind of got got a sense of what kind of dad I am, and it's not mm. the sort of dad that I thought I would be. <laughs> And, uh, and you find yourself saying the things that you, th- you swore you'd never say. I don't know how it happens, but just, you know, don't make me come up there kind of <laughs> stuff. It's like, oh, what happens to my dreams of being a really cool, relaxed dad? I don't know where that went. Um, but anyway, uh, we seem to have drifted happen. off a little bit. Yeah. So let's, let's dive back a little bit. Mm. How did you start getting, you know, when did you, where was the first place you worked at and where before that, how did you get into writing, et cetera? Well, I've always liked writing, but mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that qualifies you to actually do it. Actually, it sort of does. It's a good start. I mean, it's a start. Every so often, I get um, emails and messages on Twitter and things from people who would like to become uh, a writer, usually a car writer, mm. and I always say to them, if you want to write about cars, you have to like writing at least as much as you like cars. There's <laughs> lots of people like cars, but if you can't communicate that then it's no good. And, I mean, though, to be honest, there are plenty of people who seem to be working in car rides and you can't communicate it. Because I was just reading something this morning where I just went, this is making my brain hurt with it. So it was was a a very confusing piece of writing. I just thought, um, 
if I was if I was a journalism tutor, I would have had a stern word, <laughs> or indeed a sub editor. The problem is what is happening a lot across all media is that because mm. um, there are cutbacks, because there's not so much money in it. That, that some of the first people who get culled when they're getting desperate are the sub editors, who are the people who take the raw words that you bung at them and and then basically tidy them up and spare your blushes, and and um, they are increasingly not the filter they once were, I think, stuff, particularly online, even with some sort of quite reputable titles, things just get whacked up. You become your own yeah. sub, I suppose, or maybe one other person has eyes on it, but they're busy and so, they don't do a massively comprehensive job. And all of these sort of strange quirks and errors get through where once uh, a sort of slightly pedantic person, which I, and I was a sub at one point for Evo, mm. I did a bit of subbing for them, and because and, I'm quite pedantic. And it's, it's you have to be in that job because you're trying to be the last sort of filter before it actually gets into the real world. Um, so, yeah, I, I I always say to people, just just if you're not absolutely fascinated by writing and you want to be as good a writer as you can, can be and you keep wanting to get better at it, then, you know, loving cars is not enough. But I was always quite interested in writing as well as cars. And so I used to sort of write stuff as a hobby, I suppose, like casually, sometimes mm. for my own amusement, which is... It sounds a bit weird in retrospect, but, <laughs> but you know, I was a teenager and I didn't have a lot to do. And uh, 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 so I used to do that. And I would write stuff and send it to mates, you know, back pre-email and internet access. It was about like actually creating something on, on a, by, by hand or on a computer at home and then posting it to mates. That like, seems so to, I know. I might as well be describing like, and then I saw my first steam engine and it was fascinating. <laughs> it does sound like a million years ago now, but it was in fact just those heady days we called the 90s. And it was uh, it was a way of just amusing myself, but also it's a way of getting better at writing is by mm. doing it more so I used to sort of just try and try and write to kind of stretch that muscle a little bit um and then and then sort of um I did I did journalism at university and kind of that's what I wanted to do for a living yeah. but it is quite a hard thing to break into and it's a lot of luck and it's just sort of you know when the stars align it will happen for you and there's no so the other thing I always say to people, they go, how do you become a car journalist? I, go, I have absolutely no idea. I honestly have no idea. I mean, I have a vague sense of some things that might work for you, yeah. but I cannot tell you the magic path, which, you know, someone goes, how do I become a doctor? And you go, well, you go to medical school. Yeah. That's how it works. And then you become a doctor. It's, it's, it's actually pretty simple as long as you have the mental capacity to you yeah. know, absorb medicine. But um with, with what I, I do, it's—I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. It's—it's it's so vague, and so many people I know have come at it from different directions. But um, I always have this sense: I'd like to write for a living, and ideally, I'd like to write about cars because it's what I'm interested in. Yeah. And so, after university, I went and worked in a shop for a bit. I worked in a branch of Next because I couldn't get the job that I really wanted. So I did a lot of folding of jumpers. A lot of giving refunds to people who go, yeah, I just bought these shoes last week and they've worn out. And you go, mate, we haven't sold those for two years. Because <laughs> what I just go, it's a very interesting. I think everyone, I'm sure a lot of people will know this already. If you've ever worked in any sort of, you know, consumer facing kind of role in a shop or a pub or restaurant or whatever, that, um, um, the general public is, is a wonderful thing, but there is a proportion of them who are just 
scoundrels and liars. Yeah. And, and actually, also, we work in a shop, there's kind of thieves as well, because a bit of thievery goes on in all manner of ways, some of which are quite elaborate, some of which are literally just running into a shop, grabbing as much as you can, like a trolley dash, and running out again. Because they know that corporate shops, like Next or Marks and Spencer, yeah. I would guess, they have a policy which is generally, look, if somebody's running off up the street with, like, three men's suits in their arms... The cost to the business versus the cost of chasing them and the fact they want it more and may have a knife, it's not worth it. So, you know, officially <laughs> you're not supposed to, as one of my colleagues once did, run the length of the high street shouting, oi, at a bloke <laughs> who's got a load of clothes in his arms. Um, so, yeah. That's what I was going to say it was it was not it was not my favourite job, but, you know, it had its moments, like yeah. watching someone chasing a crim up the street. Um, I don't know. I don't know why um, I just had this thought, like, you know, like working in customer service of returns and all, working, dealing with people's problems and that sort of situation is very much like the comment section of YouTube. Oh, well, in as much as, because uh, the comment section of YouTube is a, is a strange place. It is a strange it? place. And most people who go there, there have got some sort of issue, like mm. whether, you know, they don't like you. There's a whole bunch of great people that say really nice stuff, but mm. most I would say most people that read their own comment sections, basically you almost don't see that. It's such a shame. Like it's just that that disappears. Yes, it's like I mean that's there was a fantastic. Um, do you know the oatmeal a cartoon um, series? Uh, come across that. Uh, it's it's it, they're, they're great, and uh, the guy who does it, I can't remember his name, but it, it, they're lovely little cartoons. But he did one about being sort of doing something creative and then putting it out particularly out online mm. and i mean he expressed it wonderfully in four frames i think i'm making a complete hash of explaining basically how it would work but as far as i can remember it was sort of you know he puts the, the cartoon character puts out this cartoon or something a million people say that's wonderful one person goes i didn't like it and that's the one that the cartoonist fixates on for the rest of time <laughs> And I sort of go, yeah, it's true that it's, it can be. Oh, it's funny, isn't it? Because you sort of people very casually just sitting at their laptop, yeah, going, "You're shit." So, <laughs> uh, it's very easy to say you're shit. I mean, God knows I've yeah. done it, but but the it's um, easier to type as well. Say again, sorry. It's easier to type. Like it's to very easy to type. Someone yeah. write on someone this faceless person. Yeah, and dick. it's sort of funny how you don't realise how it can actually be very cutting, which I suppose it's sort of, in a way, it's meant to be. On the other hand, it's not, because it's meant to be just sort of, it's people expressing, I don't know, I think frustration a lot of the time. They're frustrated, and they're probably frustrated because they're not doing it, you know. They're they're watching somebody else driving a Lamborghini or something, and then they're going, you're crap. And what they're really saying <laughs> is, I'm crap because I've failed at life because I haven't ever driven a Lamborghini, but I really want to and then put it on YouTube where yeah. someone else will say that I'm shit and send me into a spiral of despair about my <laughs> self-worth. Exactly. It's a horrible ecosystem when you think about it, but, you know, <laughs> here we are. And, um, yeah. We all have and, these insecurities that are just there, waiting under the surface for that one person just to, like, yeah. take you down. Actually, do you know, the one that I struggle with, actually, is when I've done something that I know is not actually that brilliant or that could have been better, <laughs> and then people immediately spot that. Because I sort of go, oh dear, I was hoping to get away with that. And when you get busted straight away, it's, it's, I mean, that's not wounding so much as you just go, ah, oh, they've spotted it. They've yeah. spotted <laughs> what a charlatan I am. 
What an absolute, they're just, they're just a dilettante playing at this and not getting it right. <laughs> and they have cut to the heart of my fraudulent behavior in this sphere. Um, it's quite you know, good that it though. Passes. Cause, cause yeah. you know, you know, if you know it's crap and everyone says it's good, that's just ultimately going to bring down your standards going. Yes. So if you just let it pass, you let it wash, but the audience is bloody smart most of the I, time. I have, um, uh, on occasion got into, I mean, not arguments as such, but disagreements with people uh, about, I mean, Top Gear particularly, things that we did on Top Gear that I didn't like. And usually the things that I really didn't like were things I didn't like at the time and have never liked. And so I've sort of dug in on my position there with the the, the India special we did, I never particularly cared for. And I, I and uh at least a couple of other things and i've sort of said so on twitter and then people go oh i really like that one <laughs> and i find myself I, I have been guilty of going well well you're wrong it's terrible and, it's like, <laughs> and, they're, and they're, i think then they're sort of they're baffled because they going, but you were instrumental in making it i mean yeah. why are you dumping on your own work and it's like because it was crap <laughs> but what you're also doing what i'm also doing in that situation is telling somebody their opinions wrong which is wrong you can't yeah. you know they liked it for the reasons they liked it it's, I, I don't think anyone's ever going to go oh well now you've pointed that out i've realized that i don't like it yeah You're like someone going i like mashed potato no you don't <laughs> but i do i find it the texture really nice no you don't no the texture's horrible yeah. no you want roast potatoes but i like mashed no 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 you're not you don't like them at all you're an idiot if you like mashed potatoes. And you, just can't, it's, you can't you can't dictate somebody's taste like that. I mean, although you know there are sort of there are reasons I could I, you know I could I could go on ad infinitum the reasons why I thought, for example, the Top Gear India special didn't mm. quite work, but those reasons don't outweigh that somebody who wasn't so close to it hasn't dissected it on a sort of yeah. editorial technical grounds they just they get a vibe off it they like it or they don't it is actually only the same as cars there's lots of ways and you go no that car's no good because the steering yeah. is uh, slightly vague just off center and the throttle tipping is a little too aggressive and and you go through all these technical reasons and you and go, it's go, a rolls royce phantom yeah, well <laughs> yeah doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> that was the one i i've just done the latest issue of evo which is just out i've just done a column about the lamborghini aventador but more mm. specifically about my son was playing a, a game on his tablet that had an aventador in it and he it's his yep. favorite car in that game and, he was, and, and i in a sort of feeble <laughs> attempt to impress my own son and be a cool dad i went actually do you know um daddy's driven one of those and he, he went, have you, you driven one of those? And, and, uh, and I was like, yes. And I went through my phone, I found pictures of it and stuff like that. And, and then he went, what's it like? And this is the whole gist of my column was then explaining why I don't like the event store <laughs> and why that's not the right thing to say to a six-year-old. Yeah. So I just went, oh, it's really cool. Really cool. Because it's sort of, it's, it's going to go. Now, let me tell you about the single clutch gearbox in that car, son. He'd be like, no, sorry, dad, I'm back on the tablet now. It's just like, it, it doesn't wash. And the same thing would be true of a lot of cars for people who aren't super into cars. Yeah. I, I, I've, That's so true. The older I get, the more that, because I, you know, I, I, enough people I know know that I'm really into cars that they'll ask about what they should buy. Mm. And it's, um, it's a tricky one for a number of reasons. Because first of all, you don't want to recommend something and then it breaks down and then they'll come back and go, 
you really stitched me up. <laughs> Seven hours I was by the side of the M62 in the rain because of you, and you oh, you should buy an Alfa Romeo because I've got great <laughs> steering or something, you know. So you can't do that. You go, oh, I realise you're my 75-year-old godmother or something. You didn't, you just, yeah. you, you wanted another Micra. So, which is why if if people aren't that into cars, I always go, just get a Japanese car, preferably, or maybe a Korean one. They're yeah. usually quite reliable and you won't come across them about it. Yeah, and it lasts forever, which... It just means they won't hassle me about it. But the other thing is, if people aren't that into cars, if you say to them, it's like, well, I'm thinking of getting a small car. I'm thinking of getting a Polo. You go, no, 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 get a Fiesta. It's much nicer (laughs) to drive. It's like, it's much nicer to drive for people like us. For what you might call normal people, a Polo is probably a nicer car because it feels better made. And it'll have slightly better resale value. And it's sort of like, it doesn't matter about you. You go, well, it's on limit handling was... (laughs) On the track, which is the only place yeah, I drove exactly. it. <laughs> it's like, I just go to the post office and the hairdresser twice a week. That's all I do. It's like someone told me a story about they were on a, they were on a car launch. I think it was a Renault Espace back when, you know, they used to still sell those mm. in the UK. And, um, but they launched in France and, uh, everyone just went out in the, what was then the new Espace, potted around the countryside for a bit and, uh, got back to the hotel and one of the sort of, Helms writey journalists from one of the magazines came tearing into the lobby, <laughs> came up to the bloke who told me his story and went, didn't you think it was a bit twitchy on the limit? <laughs> and my mate went, what limit? What, twi- what are you talking about? It's a fucking family car. Why would it, <laughs> what were you doing with it? It's like, it's not relevant. And yet you'll probably put it in your story because it's only, if you're writing for an enthusiast magazine, I mean, you, you enthusiasts, are going to be the ones who read it. And I suppose we do care mm. whether the Renault Espace is twitchy on the limit, but actual yeah. buyers of the Renault Espace, not so, not so interested. And, and you've got to sort of remember that there's a, there's a part of it that is still supposed to be consumer journalism. But then I was told once by someone from Ford that they, they'd done some research and 90% of Fiesta buyers never consume any car media before making purchase wow so i mean which is you know makes sense because you think about it it's i we understand the language of car magazines so we just don't think about it Mm. but there is a very specific language to it and actually if you're not into cars it's absolutely impenetrable it's it's like gibberish and and it'd be the same you know i don't know anything about um cross stitching i read a (laughs) cross stitch magazine it'd be like going I'm like, I have to go and Google some of these words. I don't know what they're they're about. Or it's like, I know what that word means normally, but in that context, what the? No, sorry. So I could see why, in fact, so car, car mags generally, maybe not what car, which mm. apparently I was told these years ago, it may not be true now because they have the online thing, but, but back when what car was just a magazine, the average what car buyer, in fact, bought three copies of what car. One when they were just sort of thinking of buying a car. One when they were definitely going to buy a car and they really need to do some proper research, get their head down. Yeah. And then they'd probably just have one nervous, buy another copy and see if there was anything else in it before <laughs> they actually committed to buying a car. And that's it. Then they bought the car and they didn't feel the need to buy what car anymore because it was very much a consumer guide rather than a sort of leisure yeah. read. If I look at other magazines and other bits of media that I consume that aren't cars, let's say I'm looking to buy... A hi-fi. Mm. Oh my would, god, hi-fi magazines absolutely baffling. This is I would do exactly that process. I would 
I, I probably wouldn't buy the magazine anymore, but I would go mm. on What Hi-Fi or whatever yeah. website, read like, just Google and read all of the reviews about the top 10, blah, 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 blah. Pull all your knowledge together. Ask a mate who might be into Hi-Fi's if you've got yeah. one. And then that's it. But I will yeah. never become, I'm never reading it on a weekly basis. No. I'm never doing any of that stuff. It's no. very, and that's probably how most people interact. And I, mm. when people ask me about a certain car, I think as I sort of get older and become more nerdy about cars, I almost, I've gone the opposite when people ask me about cars, because unless I know they're exactly like me in, in terms yes. of how they would use a car and, you know, what mindset and budgets and whatever, they're probably not looking for the answer that I'm going to give them about a car. Like your, your Aventador buyer, the person that's going to buy an Aventador and says, what do you think of the Aventador? I know we're not the same people purely mm. from the fact that he's walked into a shop to try and buy an event store. Like it's yeah, just yeah. not, we're it's probably really, in a different starting point. We're probably looking for different things in a car. Maybe. But your first question back to them has got to be, do you want an event store? <laughs> yeah, and they're exactly. going to say yes. And you say, do you have enough money or the means by some other loan or something to get an Aventador you should go and get an Aventador yeah. I feel like that's the only course of action that's going to satisfy you here because you've asked me about the Aventador and you it really is validation you're yeah. looking for it's yeah. it's it's odd isn't it but I mean, well it's not odd it makes perfect sense you know it's 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 just that sometimes uh, when you know a bit too much about a subject matter you can kind of lose that perspective that people yeah. just want shiny things because they want them and they don't want necessarily to be told any harsh truths about it that may never affect them i mean you want an event store it's probably because of the way it looks and it looks know. amazing and sounds mm. amazing that's the thing i've I, ever since i've dr- driven an event store i've driven more than once but i i i um i've always thought the best way to enjoy an event store is from another car Yes. Because then you get to yes. look at an Aventador going down the road and they look fucking great. But driving one, mm, not so much. No. Yeah. Have you, I've, I was involved, I did a road trip. Um, I've got a GT3. I've got a GT3 RS. Yes, I know. Um, and that's and, why I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, well, we're going to get onto this later, but anyway, go on. And sorry. I, and I did a road trip with a, a couple of my friends and it, it ended up being two GT3s and two GT3 RSs. Mm. So it was like very Porsche heavy, very, very similar sort of thing. And following, there was the other guy, with the, he has the same car, different colour, and same exhaust, same everything. Following him on the motorway in my car or like down some windy roads and what was the best experience because you're, you're driving the car and you're getting the driving experience, but you're following the same car. So you get the full oral experience and the look of chasing the car that you like whilst driving that was amazing amazing I, I, everyone if you've got a car that you like you should try and drive behind the same car <laughs> if you can at some point in time i've got a, an old uh, land rover defender um and i occasionally do see defenders on the street and i always go oh look at that it looks really cool and then go oh wait i've got one of those <laughs> i'm in it now yay because you forget what your car looks like you know you've got you know you're in the right car, though, when that's the situation, when you see another one just randomly walking around and you're like, ooh. Yeah, so you that. sort of admire it and then yeah. remember that, yeah, rather than admire it and going, oh, I don't have one of those, which yeah. <laughs> which is kind of like, I don't know, sometimes, though, I think that's like um, the most interesting magazine or newspaper in the world is the one that somebody else is reading 
opposite you on a train <laughs> or a plane. Yeah. And you get a glance. Yeah, but if, you, if, they, if they actually went, oh, I see you're looking at my magazine, would you like to read it? And they give it to you, suddenly becomes a little bit less interesting because you go, oh, God, this looked a lot more interesting from afar. <laughs> yeah. Don't know what happened there. And I, th- I feel like that with some cars, you know, you sort of see them and you go, I would love to have one of those. I'd love to just even drive one of those, you know, something like a Citroen SM. Yeah. And then you think, would the magic immediately start to ebb away? I don't know. I mean, it probably wouldn't. A lot of cars, you know, plenty of cars that I've sort of always wondered what they were like. And then you have a go and you, uh, they don't disappoint. But I think particularly I th- with old stuff, the parameters are different. Yeah. I think most cars, if you someone lent you one for an afternoon and you used it for the thing that you would love to use that car for, that's probably 90% of the ownership experience. Like done. You've got a lot of the thrills, the joys, the new thing, whether it's really comfy yeah. and you're like, oh, I get to drive around in a Rolls Royce or, oh, I went really fast or this looks like a cool classic old car. You've got so much of the experience that you would have had from buying it without having to buy it. Yes, that that is probably true. Maybe that's why those car clubs exist. Cause... I think they're quite a good idea, but they just seem I a just wonder if I'd find it frustrating because I would fall in love with something completely random. And it would it would sort of spoil your life, which brings me to the Porsche nine nine seven GT three RS, which <laughs> um, which I have driven and absolutely fell in love with, and then was sort of filled with this ennui because I thought I don't think I'll ever own one of those. I mean, it's not completely out of the question, but it was just I I, I drove it like it was the week I think before my daughter was born. Mm. So I definitely had other priorities at that point, but um, but but I borrowed Porsche UK still have their original press car, the grey one, Hebe or yeah, which people who read car mags and, and car media online will know about because it's I mean they yeah it, it's just uh, um, sort of. Uh, achieved sort of iconic status amongst yeah. car journalists, which is a terrible <laughs> thing in itself. But um, but it is a wonderful car, and I I borrowed it for a week, and it's it's the last time. And bear in mind, my daughter's about to turn three. It's the last time I just got up early and went for a drive. Mm. Just haven't haven't ever got round to that now. And also, as I suppose part and parcel of a midlife crisis, if I get up early now, I go for a run rather mm. than go for a drive because yeah. I, there's a point to the run, which is I can go around in a circle and come back and feel sort of slightly healthier for it, which means I can have a beer or some cheese later. But but going for a drive, it's sort of like, unless I've got a test a car, I mean, I do go out and drive, you know, just to go and yeah. try out cars to write about them. But but the idea of just getting up and going for a drive for the sake of driving the car because I want to drive the car, I haven't done for three years. And the last time was um, Porsche's GT3 RS. Which is just perfect. In every way, and is is yeah, it is Although, my favorite car. I and and this is I think it's probably why the reason I have I have not changed it for anything else is this sort of decision paralysis of like it's such a good car mm. at all of the general things that whenever I drive something else, I'm like, yeah, this is still still really good. Yeah, um, I think one of the experiences that the journalists have missed out on with that car is that car has the standard setup in terms of exhaust and whatnot, which is normal because it's come from Porsche. And one of the first things I suggest to anyone that's bought that car is basically unplug the valves on the exhaust. Right. And so rather than going like, you know how there's and the 
exhaust does mm. that. It does the same on a 458. Like the valve is shut and then it opens. Mm. You just have it open. So it's the right. same overall volume, but it's loud sort of, it's the full volume from naught to whatever. And uh-huh. therefore driving at 20 miles an hour, you don't do the thing where you try and like, put your, try and get it flat long enough for it to open up and hear the noise. Okay. And then you see my fantasy for one of those cars, which I know will appall purists, <laughs> is to try and do a sort of touring job on it. Oh, yeah. Because I, you know, on those Gen Two ones, you, the 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 tall wing on the back is sort of very obviously bolted on. Allen yeah, key yeah. And you can just take it off. I think you just take it. Well, that's the thing. I've looked into this, and some people have tried it. I think with normal with non RS ones, and there's a little ducktail. Yes, there molded is. into the into the engine cover. So, and I was thought, well, what would it look like? We just took the big wing off and left the ducktail, and it would just look a bit more discreet. And I don't want any stickers on it, and I don't want any sort of you know lightly yeah, yeah. coloured wheels. You know, they, they're cool in their own right, but I sort of, what if you just took it all down a notch? And what if you could find a way to put a back seat in it so my kids could come? This along is my dream. It would be my everyday nine eleven. Yeah, which but with that gear change and that engine and that chassis, and you know, because I think the ride is weirdly good for the amount of. Um, performance it has like this sort of yeah if, if you said you to someone this is a porsche's racing car track road car type thing and you said that about it if you then put them in like a cup car they'd be like yes this is that car if you put them in a gt3 rs they think it's like a slightly stiffer road car type thing like it's mm. it handles bumps handles everything really yeah. well um yeah my i think that's my one problem with the car is it's amazing as a Driving experience, amazing. I don't think it get much better. But I would love back seats. I would love to not have the cage. Mm-hmm. And the wing, I'm sort of like 50-50 on. I would, I would, if like you say, if I could turn it into like a touring situation that had back seats, I would, I would consider that as an option because it would make it more usable for me. Yes, well, exactly. Which goes back to what you were saying about, you know, a car... Your opinion on a car is based on your circumstances. Yeah. Someone else's circumstances may be very different and they may not want these things. But I personally, I like the practicality of 911s and, um, and just to make, for my mind, the nicest 911 I've yeah. ever driven sort of into all of the other, uh, incorporate all the other yeah. good bits from other 911s. It just feels like you could make some kind of ultra 911 for me and my. <laughs> so if you're a sort of lanky bloke who lives in North London and writes about cars, this is the car for you that I'm imagining. Yeah, um, yeah. And since you're almost certainly not, then it's like, well, you can go your own way. But yeah, that is my, genuinely, I, I, I've, I've thought about this and I have seen pictures of, de- of people who've de-winged uh, those cars. And, um, and yeah, also... What it looks like. Some I might, I might, have I might take mine off. See what well, just give it if a it's, go. If it's doable, I've got to go and get some bits done to it, some brake pads changed and stuff like that soon. So if it, if it, the wing comes off, I'll take I'll take the wing off and take a picture. Because at what point is that wing doing any work of any value? I wonder. Like, hundred. Uh, it's got to be a hundred through a corner. Because yeah. a hundred in a straight line, it's actually just adding drag. So it's like, you, you, in fact, you know, take the wing off and your fuel economy will go up so yeah, it's, but a, it's I don't a win-win how, win. how much the error at the front is adjusted for the wing on the back uh, so you might well do when this they did the touring take... when they did the 991 touring yeah. they did do some tweakery to the front end and to it's compensate. got a different diffuser and stuff yeah the, the the job they did on the touring is 
weirdly comprehensive. They didn't just lop the wing off. It's got a different wiring loom, apparently. Does it? Apparently so. I, I don't know, know why. I haven't got to the bottom of why. <laughs> but see, again, that touring, a bit of a dream car for me, but would be even more of a dream car if it was possible to have a back seat in it. Agreed. Again, with the caveat that that's my life. I have two small children. Why I like 911s is because small children can come with you if they so want. Now, I think on a 997, I think it's possible. Mm. I think you can put a back seat into a 997. On a 991, the none of the hard points, none of the structure underneath is that's there. A, yeah, the floor pan is different, isn't for it? For the seats. So, like, you're, you're properly going into, like, mm. iffy tech. You could do it, like American style, just do it. But it's probably not going to be very safe and you wouldn't want to put your kids in there and have an accident. No, just throw some cushions back there and just let everyone <laughs> exactly. lounge around. So, you know, kind of like one of those um, kind of North African lounge kind yes, of things where yes. people just sit on cushions on the floor. That that would be the vibe I could go for on a budget. But um, you're right, not necessarily no, I think um, when this is all sort of people can go and sit next to each other again, which you're, I don't know whether you're allowed to do at the moment. You should have a go in mind. In mind. It's got a... It sounds, I would say it's significantly better than a stock one, just as an experience, because of the, yeah. the exhaust. It's got a louder exhaust as well. Yeah, I don't remember sort of thinking it wasn't loud enough at low speed, because uh, again, it, with my sort of touring head on, I'm kind of like, I quite oh, like yeah, I totally being able to sneak in and out of my streets without, which actually you couldn't, because it starts up with a bit of a warmth, doesn't it? So, yeah, it does. that's it. When I went for my early morning drive the weekend before I had to hand it back, it was sort of 6am on a Sunday Mm. And um, I, I <laughs> had even got my strategy ready. I was like, there was enough space for me not to need to back up to get out of the space. But basically, yeah. it was key ignition, but don't start it. Into first, clutch in, handbrake off, and you've never seen a car, the gap between <laughs> it starting and it disappearing off down the road. But gently, no yeah. no use of high revs. Uh, it was, it was, I'd got it, I'd like mind mapped it in my head. This is how it's going to go down because I'm going to try and minimize the amount by which I completely piss off my neighbors. Yeah. I, um, I, I live on a very quiet street and I've exactly the same thing. Like if I know I'm going to be leaving early, I'll try and, if the car's in the garage, I'll take it out of the garage and just leave it outside the house in the morning sometimes. And then I just want to be start first gear and then basically let the car roll. <laughs> like on just like lift up the clutch and let it just like pull itself out and then off you go yeah that's it that's why the because so now uh the latest nissan gtrs have a quiet start and aston's as well the db11 they, they um, all the should DBSR. have it yeah it's quite a new suddenly have caught onto it. i think the mustang the latest mustang has it as well mm. and um yeah you do i think if i can't remember now how you do it in the aston it's it's i think you hold the button rather than just press it once Ooh. and release and it does a whole different you know which also only proves that all of that is yeah. is all artifice you know it's not yeah. naturally how the car needs to start it's how the engine management has been programmed to start then, it with the exhaust and they should barrels. have the opposite which like american cars should be able to be done from the key for the owner that wants their car to make a ridiculous noise so only yeah. done from the key your aventador starts up like <laughs> full choke full valves just like and then you're like, oh, yeah, that's my car. Yeah. Well, that's that. Yeah, that's that. <laughs> I, I, I never understood that remote start thing. I think it's for people so I you guess, can put air and stuff on cold and hot places. Yeah, yeah. I think to so. Get it started. I'd never heard of this until I gather that a lot of Italian politicians used to have 
an early version of that system fitted in the 80s because they were such assassination targets and oh you know cars yeah. would regularly blow up <laughs> and things so it's um it's, so i only associate it with that because i'd never heard of it i think i read about it in car magazine you know they yeah. just, they, if you were like the minister I mean, that is niche that one it is a bit isn't it but it's it's also quite chilling that you yeah. press the button from like hiding around the corner of your house and <laughs> okay it's good and then running to your lancia thema before you got shot i mean i presume yeah. that's what happened but no right okay we've definitely diverged significantly from sorry yes we have <laughs> um so you were doing some journalism you were writing some stuff and then you went to work for a magazine or you were submitting to various magazines huh I had done, but with no success. And so I was no, I was just writing crap for my own amusement and for, for my friends. And I was working in a shop and then I got um, a job on old Top Gear when it was a, still a half hour show on a Thursday night. So mm. John Bentley, who was the producer, but also one of the presenters of the show, popped up at the end of an episode and said, we're looking for researchers, send three ideas in with your CV. And, and I did that and then waited a while, went for an interview, was wearing the same tie as John Bentley, which I think is why I got <laughs> the job. And and that was it. And I was a junior researcher on Old Top Gear and The Cars, The Star, which was another show that was made out of the same office. So it was a bit of a you know lucky break that, that I, I was... I, well, first of all, I saw that episode because, I mean, although I did watch Top Gear pretty religiously on a Thursday night, I remember that evening I was going to meet some mates in the pub and I said, oh, I'll be down about nine o'clock after Top Gear. Mm. And so I saw that and wrote down the address to send it to and then went to the pub and then probably the next day got on with trying to apply for this job. But um it was... Yeah, it was it was it was good good luck, good timing. They weren't supposed to recruit people that way. That's the other yeah. thing. John got into a lot of trouble because it wasn't BBC <laughs> policy to advertise jobs at the end of the program. Because <laughs> can you imagine? Just went, hello, we're looking for a new barmaid on EastEnders. Why don't you write in to get a million people? So it's you know, and Top Gear was was at the. Though. Say again, sorry. You definitely get fans though. You've, you've well, got like keen people. They took. I didn't hear anything for months. And they only told me afterwards it was because they got more applications than they expected, but they were able to root out quite a few early doors because they had people who did things like, when here's my CV, I'm not sending you three ideas because you'll only steal them. So you'll have to have me in for an interview and then I'll tell you about them and stuff like that. And they said, uh-uh. If you haven't abided by the rules, you don't get any further. So it was, um, yeah, it was a bit, it took them a bit longer to do and, um, uh, but yeah, I got the job. There were four of us they hired in the end, and um, and we all joined as junior researchers from different backgrounds, and that was that was how I got into it. And then, what does, is, sorry, is, what, what does a junior researcher do? They do everything that a researcher does, but for less money. Is the yeah. <laughs> so I mean, so in in TV and in that show, the researchers we we were doing if you remember top gear back then you know it was a, a sort of a, a broader church it was a magazine show so it was there would be road tests of cars so in that case the researchers would probably book the cars in from the manufacturers but then sometimes it would be like uh here's a new golf or something yeah. and the script would call for a mark one golf and volkswagen would say we haven't got our mark one golf someone's crashed it or something 
So then you'd have to go and find a Mark One Golf that was immaculate and could turn up to a shoot in yeah. Buckinghamshire next Thursday. So it's all that sort of, you know, just sorting stuff out. And, and then we used to do quite a bit of consumer kind of reporting. The big thing at the time was how cars were cheaper on the continent than they were here. Right. which we ended up making a point about by going to the Netherlands and buying a Rover 200. The point being, the Rover factory was just down the road from our yeah. office in Birmingham. So it's like this car has travelled all the way to the Netherlands in right-hand drive, special order. We've gone over there, picked it up, brought it back again, and we've saved, I can't remember how many thousand pounds it was. And that was quite a crusade at the time. Uh, and we had a sort of specialist consumer researcher who did all that stuff, a guy called Malcolm, who just was his job to, to look into all these, these sort of more grown up stories. So the stuff that the rest of us did on the research desk was a lot of background research on cars, you know, sort of checking scripts and facts if, if there were kind of question marks in them. And, um, I mean, I don't really remember an awful lot of what we did because it feels like it wasn't that complicated compared to. I used to look at the researchers with their heads down on Top Gear as it became when we were planning some kind of massive road trip across some far-flung place. Mm. And I used to think, oh, my God, I'd be crap at that. I can't, you know, so much to worry about and so much that you've got to take care of. And oh, we're going to pass through this region of Peru. Can you find out why they always wear hats like that? <laughs> you know, and someone would have to sort of immerse themselves in 100,000 years of Peruvian history just to go back to, to Jeremy and go... It was originally because of flies and also to honor Christ. And it'd be like, what? Well, but well, and then, because yeah, what we wanted to do and what Jeremy's incredibly good at, his tabloid uh, journalist brain is, is distilling complex issues down to something mm. that's punchy and interesting. But you can only do that if you have the, the full facts in front of you. Um, and in fact, I got a good schooling in that early on from, of all people, TV's Tiffany Dell, because Tiff mm. is a very clever man. And an engineer by training, which a lot of people don't realise. And so he has a kind of engineer's brain where he needs hard data to be able to then sift to get yeah. to the bits that are relevant. And he would always, you'd sort of present him with a research document. He'd go, but why this? But why that? And he'd go, oh, no, I've missed a bit out. And if you if you got the, but why from Tiff, it was like, <laughs> oh, shit, I've got to go back. And, and at one time he was asking me, He's asking me for something, and I was going, I don't think this is going to be relevant, Tiffany. He went, I'll decide if it's relevant once I've got all the facts in front of me. And he was right. I mean, that is the way to do it. You know, he's, he's, he sort of, he was a better journalist than some journalists because he, he just wanted to know everything and yeah. then he'd be able to just pick the bits that were important. And, um, so that was a lot of what we were doing. Appeasing Tiff's mm. thirst for facts was one thing. And then, um, yeah, we would sort out cars and the cars, the star, which was a sort of sister show. The, the research on that was, you know, you were doing historical research. You were, you were digging up the backstory to the featured car. So um, I did the Beetle and the DeLorean and the Lada and a bit of stuff on the Jeep and some other ones as well. So, yeah, they were good fun to do. But that was a full sort of deep dive into... And this was, again, I'm going to sound like I'm going, and then they invented the spinning jet and revolutionized <laughs> everything. But but the, this was pre there being just the internet on all computers. Yeah. We had an internet computer in the office, which was just a lone terminal in the corner, and it was rubbish because it was probably a dial-up of some sort. Yeah. Um, it certainly wasn't broadband. 56K or something now. like that. Yeah, it was. I think it was. It was a... It was a 
it was an old spectrum that had been hooked up to the phone line. But um, so, I mean, bear in mind when I started the BBC, which was late, uh, no, so it was, was mid nineteen ninety eight. You had a computer on your desk, and they were just phasing in email for everyone. So when I started, I didn't have an email address. I had to wait a few weeks. I was just <laughs> until I was part of the email upgrade program. It seems unthinkable now because I don't know. And we didn't have email. We didn't have internet on our computers. And I honestly don't know, you know, what do we used to do all day? Because it's like, yeah. there must have been, how, how did you waste all that time in the gaps between doing actual work if you weren't just going on? Ski free. That game, maybe, yeah. That? <laughs> I might have had a Game Boy in my desk drawer, yeah. did a bit of Tetris or something. I don't know. It's odd thinking back, but um, but at the same time, I don't, I don't remember being bored. It was always stuff to do, and it was a great job to learn how TV works because I yeah. had no experience in that field, and it was a very good environment to learn because there were lots of people who were very generous with their time and took took the time to explain stuff. Mm. Um, so that was my first kind of proper job in in the world that I wanted to inhabit and then um from there I just kind of you know it's once you're in the door it's a, it's it's yours to screw up I guess because at least you've got uh, a way in and you can um learn stuff and hopefully learn from it and get better and it is quite an incestuous world and if as long as you don't get a reputation for being a dick and hopefully you'll be able to get more work down the line because you'll have worked with somebody who's on a new project. That, and that's the thing I hope I haven't sort of had to go out and really look for work for a long time because it, you know, you get to know people, you get to hear of things going on or people approach you. It's um, in that respect, you know, I'm very fortunate, but it is, it is quite a small and incestuous world. Um, and that can work greatly to your advantage if you can just get a toe in the door. So, um, I was very lucky that that's how it, how it happened for me that I just got in into a good, a good job and a sort of good high profile thing. Um, uh, quite a, an early stage and then, um, uh, went off and worked on a couple of things actually that were a bit disastrous, but thank God it didn't, um, it didn't sort of, uh, compromise my ability to then go back into the world and get more work so uh yeah that was that's how it started anyway because it was yeah. it was a lot of luck so yeah you were and then so you were doing some researching and what time what point in time will you start writing for- well the first thing i did when i started at, at bbc pebble mill was was an episode of the cars to star about the larder but it was in the summer top gear was on its summer break and a lot of people were taking holidays and things so there wasn't any filming going on and they said can you research the story of the larder and I did, and they'd already put a shout out asking for larder owners. So I was a lot of ringing around those, finding some interesting people who've got larders that could come on the show and talk. And it was sort of reached a point where I went to the producer and went, right, so here's all the background research, you know, and there's quite a lot of it. I think I've kind of made sense of it all. And here are the people who are willing to take part in the show. And here are some cars that I'm able to book if we need them. And And he went, well, we're not going to start filming anything until next month, so why don't you have a go at writing a script? And I'd never written a TV script before, mm. and he gave me some old episodes, old scripts to look at, so I got an idea of the format. And then I had sort of two or three weeks at least just to, to work on this and keep working on it and keep refining it and trying to make it better. And, and you know, the, the thing about writing TV scripts, which I think often catches out people who come from a, 
a prose background, like a magazine writing mm. background or a newspaper writing background, is that the number of words in a TV script is far, far fewer. If you think you've cut enough words out of it, in fact, you need to go back and cut out another 50%. It's like, it's, it's, it's such a spare discipline to write TV scripts yeah. and to make it punchy. I mean, it's one of the reasons why Clarkson is so successful. It's something that he doesn't get acknowledged for. His ability to condense everything into as few words as possible and still include information that makes sense and probably have a gag in there as well is I've never met anyone like it. I yeah. still struggle to, you know, I do, a, I do some, something for him and I give it to him and then he'd send it back to me and he'd have taken out 30 <laughs> other words and you go, and it's still fine. And he's like, yeah. how has he done that? You know, it's like, <laughs> I think uh, uh, funny enough, it is because he comes from a newspaper background, but he used to have to write, you know, sort of news in brief for a local paper. Oh, okay. and, things. and that is a real discipline to do. And it's, and we did a bit of it when I was at college, when I, when I was doing journalism. And I remember once the tutor told me off because I'd written a line that said, you know, they, they give you a scenario. There's been an accident. There's been a train crash. You have to write a story about this and here are all the details. Go away and do it. And I'd written something like, uh, the injured were taken to hospital to, for medical treatment. And the tutor went, what other kind of treatment would they have at hospital? <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, right. I get you. See, that's, I think that's the sort of mentality that was drummed into Jeremy at a young age. And he brings that to bear on TV scripts. And they're, they're, he's very, I, I once, I worked with the people who did the Top Gear US offshoots mm. with um, Tanner, Rutledge and Adam. And I remember when we started working together, I showed some of the guys on the production team some scripts of ours. And I remember one of them went, is this it? And I went, <laughs> yeah. And he was like, but it's, and it was, it was like a, it was yeah. a, a track test. I can't remember the car that Jeremy had done. And it was like three, three pages of A4, something like that. And it did look very thin when you printed it out. Yeah. I mean, I grant you, but I went, go through that and tell me there's not a piece of information in there that you, you're, you're waiting to hear. At some point, yeah. tell me what's missing from there, because um, I, I think it's and, and you know, do you know how fast it is? Do you know how it handles? Does he like it? And he went through and he was like, "This is awesome!" Like it was like it was like the keys to, to a new world because because nobody writes as such a minimalist way and yet manages to bring to it through delivery as well as as the yeah. writing. Uh, you know, the sort of the, the warmth and the enthusiasm and the charisma that he does. And it is actually an underrated skill. And so I, I learned a lot from him. I mean, I learned a lot from a lot of people at Pebble Mill because that's the thing. To answer your question that you asked about two weeks ago, <laughs> I, um, I, I started writing because I got, I got told to have a go at a script. Yeah. And then, uh, we were about to start filming and Quentin Wilson, who was a presenter, came into the office and he'd seen the script and he went, did you write this? And I said, yeah. And he went, it's very good. And that was it. That was all I needed to go. Oh my bloody God. That guy off the telly says, bloody goodness. And, um, and so, yeah, then they let me keep on writing. And actually then they had this weird BBC thing where they decided that after the four of us they'd hired as researchers after maybe a year, uh, their policy was to rotate researchers between programs, which is very sensible because it gets you a broader base of experience. But we were all car people and we wanted to stay on top gear. Yeah. And th the other three got moved around a bit. <laughs> um, so. And John Bentley 
managed to save my skin and keep me on top gear by saying, oh, but he's not just the researcher. He writes scripts as well, and I need him. So it saved my ass a bit there in as much as, because I didn't yeah. particularly want to go and work on Gardener's World or something, and that, you know, would have been part of what would have happened. Mm. Much so, it would have been, you know, good experience, but but it wouldn't have been the same. Um, so, yeah, the writing of scripts was just something I was kind of fell into and it, and, and then just clung in there. And, and it is, it's a hell of a way to learn if you're actually doing it and mm. you're out on location. And you've got some really good people like, I mean, Quentin, very supportive throughout those early days of my career and since because he he was sort of you know encouraging words and um, I was thinking maybe here we should do this and that because here's why you know and he's just going well you know this bloke's been doing it for ages and he knows what he's doing you know Tiff's the same and and um they would they would be very helpful it was it was a great place to learn I consider myself very lucky I don't think work environments like that in telly exist anymore because um everything's just a bit more frantic and higher paced because there is more to do. The bar is higher for sort of the standards of quality and things, but at the same time, there's not necessarily as much money. So everything just has to happen faster with fewer people, longer hours. Everyone's just a bit grumpier and they can't just get some kid who used to work in a shop and go, here's why we probably can't have an exploding elephant, but let me tell you what we can do here. And then you can go away and you'll, you'll have learned from that. You know, it's sort of, so I was really fortunate to be, at there at that time yeah uh, it sounds really cool and it's i it's funny that idea of distilling stuff down and distilling stuff down and distilling stuff down you always see when people are doing videos now like youtubers or something they're like why is this 15 minutes long You're like, mm. well one the audience has said we don't want anything scripted which is not what they it's not what they actually mean but it is what mm. they say and you're like, well, if you don't, if someone doesn't sit down and try and plan it to be short and concise. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That's what happens. You just say all the stuff and it takes forever. Presumably in like a Top Gear episode, the the longer ones when they're all filming and talking, they must end up with hours and hours of footage. Oh, hours. I mean, it's it was something that was just accepted because those bits, you know, they've bought three crap old cars, they've driven for a bit, they pull over, they have a chat. Those bits weren't scripted. That was just yeah. them winging it. And it was some of the best stuff we often did because they're very funny together. But if you saw it 
in real life, it, you'd go, where's this going? This is, you know, they would chat for <laughs> half an hour and it would make three minutes of TV. If that, you know, it's just yeah. baggy, freewheeling and often nonsensical. And we would have editing and it would be edited down to the good bits. And that's the other way of doing it, which to your point about sort of some YouTubers doing 15 minutes videos where they don't seem to say anything is because there is no script and there is no editing or not enough of either um, to make it punchy, which, you know, and then you'll look and that 15 minute video will have got a million views. And so it's clearly doing something right. (laughs) It it does, it does jangle my script editor's brain yeah. you just go you've said that you said you said that as well and now you've said it in a worse way why are you repeating yourself badly it's just infuriating <laughs> but you know that's just me i'm not target audience i guess um the the bit that came brought it home about the way in which we would make stuff with clarkson hammond and may mm. was when we moved to amazon and the show went into 4k right and of course there's no tapes in the cameras anymore it's memory cards and uh, the, the technical standard that Amazon wanted us to conform to was their sort of just general in-house standard, which they wanted to be as high as possible to future-proof all of their stuff yeah. because it's just going to live forever online forever. So they aimed for the stars. So it was 4K HDR. I can't remember the tech standard. We used to have this fantastic woman called Chloe who was across all this stuff, and she was she became from trying to make the grand tour comply to the standard within what we tried to do. She became Britain's sort of preeminent 4K experts in terms of tech standards. And she used to go and speak at conferences and stuff like that, all wow. because she foolishly took a job on the Grand Tour. Like she was, um, she was, she was struggling with the sheer amount of data that we would generate on the yeah. cards because a drama, if you shoot at that very high resolution, well, you know, one scene you might do a few takes, but hopefully the actors hit their marks, yeah. they get their lines, it's, oh, the lighting's all right, you know, it's all so, and it's all quite short and punchy. It's not roll cameras and then 45 minutes later <laughs> cut cameras once these three men have stopped dribbling onto each other and you've got three cameras on them the whole time yeah. to give you those cut points if you need them. It just gives you the coverage you need to be able to edit it into something that doesn't look weird and jumpy. That is and it's just, I mean, so we were, and, and funny enough, one of the bottlenecks in the Grand Tour production process was ingest time. Oh, yeah. Just having the cards backing up into the, in the field, into the computers, you know, yeah. the drives in the field, and then getting those drives ingested into the big computer that would do the editing. And which itself, you know, had to be a pretty hefty machine to, um, to cope with this high res. Crazy amount of terabytes. Of just terabytes. I can't remember. I used to have all stats because I had to write a, a thing about it once. And I basically sat Chloe down and went, tell me all of this stuff. And she just sighed and went, right, let me start with it. First of all, it's not just 4K, it's 4K HDR. Blah, blah, and it's got a, there's a, yeah. there's another bit. I'll be honest, I don't understand some of it. It's super like nerdy kind of. It's I, probably like 200 megabytes a second. So, at least like something like that. Like that, that sorts, those sorts of crazy yeah. amounts. It's, it's absolutely nutty. And of course, the, 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 it's not just the, the sheer volume of data. It's then the processing of it and that all of this comes with a cost. And the, the amount that was just spent behind the scenes that you never saw, you know, there's all that old TV cliche about all the money's on screen. And I think the grand tour 
with Top Gear, we had, you know, we, we, we saved a lot of money other ways to make sure it was all kind of big. Yeah. With the Grand Tour, it was, it, it, we couldn't do all that anymore because there was just a technical cost or rather there was a cost of the technical spec of the show because Amazon set out these very high standards and they'd been fine for everything they'd made up until that point and they hadn't reckoned on buying a show where it was just basically roll cameras and that's even before you get to the mini cams in the cars where if they're doing a road trip it's just again roll cams off you go you keep talking I mean they ended up having a system where they'd have some buttons down here sort of by the handbrake and they could just one button because they're they're all technical idiots really when it comes to stuff like that yeah. particularly jeremy and you could, they just have a big red button that you could stop the cameras if you wanted to if you couldn't think of anything else to say it was please hit the red button <laughs> stop the cameras because then you're not just recording a man driving yeah while whistling to himself or recording you know a man concluding his thoughts to the camera pausing and then lighting a cigarette and he goes <laughs> go, well, we can't show this so you're just wasting memory but it's and, all going to get sucked into the computer that's going to get transferred to the other computer yeah. so you're just and some poor adding person time and expense has to yeah. watch it <laughs> someone has to log it data loggers who are logging all this stuff and, and then we'd, we'd have try and make the editing process easier everything would be transcribed so you go through and search and go, I'm sure, you know, someone said, oh, I'm sure there was a bit where, where James yeah. said this. Okay. Let's go find that. And then we'll know where we are with it. It's yeah. Lot, lot of effort went into things that no one would ever know about or see as part of the overall editing process to make this polished and hopefully sort of punchy and interesting final product. Yeah. And- There's some, it's mad that whole process. And I think it's, it, it's probably why. That your your one man YouTuber or one man filming band is so much more efficient than as, as soon as you even go to two people. Mm. As soon yeah. as someone filming is not the person that's talking and it's not the person that's editing, you have to have that dialogue of going, "Oh, I think there was that bit where I said," and then you have no idea where it was. If you film it, you know you said yeah. it. It was on camera, done. You edit it, you know where it is, all of that stuff, and then you just yeah. go from this. That That's absolutely true. To like fifty people straight away. It's just like I do um, have a little uh, thing with my friend Johnny Smith, who you've had on on this show. Yeah, uh, you have a quite an amazing thing. podcast. Yeah, well, before the podcast was a sort of necessity uh, driven by lockdown, but before that, we were doing videos on YouTube, oh, yeah. and yeah. Um, originally, I used to edit them, and I would generally I realized it was better if I edited them as soon as I could after we'd filmed them, because then like you say, you can remember bits and pieces. I also realized that I was putting too much effort into editing them. I mean, I noticed a lot of YouTubers now, I mean, it's funny because when we were doing Top Gear, there was a period when we were convinced it's like we were sort of getting a bit, you know, we, we'd sort of reached a certain point where we were not these sort of outsiders and the new kids or, and, yeah. and doing something different. We were now the establishment and a new car show was going to come along and destroy us. And, and thankfully it never happened because we sometimes used to go, well, what, what could we do differently or what could another show mm. do differently that will expose us as the dinosaurs we are? <laughs> we, we always used to think we, we can't think of it, which means we're in trouble. Because we don't know, yeah. we don't know where it's coming from. Um, but mercifully, no one else would sign off on another car show. It seemed to, to to try and steal our lunch. But I always said that rather than trying to compete with the sort of Top Gear production values, which had got pretty high by then, yeah, that somebody would do something different by being lo-fi 
And maybe that was what we wouldn't see coming. Um, and weirdly, that is sort of what YouTube is. Yeah. Not that I was being incredibly, you know, prescient about this. I just, it was just a hunch that lo-fi was the only way to be high fidelity, but, but YouTube is all quite, I mean, case in point, I was thinking it's, it's an inspired move was Matt from Smoking Tire, who also I know you've had on, mm. on here that came up with that one take thing, which is just Great the most idea. pure, efficient way of, of filming something that you could imagine and, and was done, you know, purely just because it was like time is money. The less time I spend on this, the better. Yeah. And I thought that's, that was really an inspired move, but I, I, I'd notice, you know, a lot of the YouTube, the standard YouTuber way of editing is jump cuts and stuff, isn't it? You just yeah. slash bits out. Yeah. And I used to sit there editing our Smith and Sith videos and I'd be like, no, I'm going to, you know, I was trying to editorialize them, even though the problem is we weren't scripted and we were, it's just two blokes talking yeah. shit in a car. And I'd be, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I try and move things around. Or I think structurally it'd be better if that was better. The yeah. Front no point. It's, there's <laughs> no point. I was just worrying over nothing, you know, and I, but the only thing I couldn't ever get comfortable with was the idea of just jump cutting. It just looked, it, it looks very ugly to me. It was, so yeah. I don't mind it on other people's videos, but I just didn't, I couldn't get, it's a funny one. Finesse it with a cutaway, you know, so it's like, yeah. if there's going to be a jump, then you just go to another shot and, and which is the old school way of doing yeah. it. But no one cares anymore. It's, it's that thing of having, you know, like, like you say, when you started off, you, you'd send, you'd write something and you send it in the post to someone else. And then you'd have a couple of days till it got to them. They, mess around with it and in a couple of days to come back or your producer show you do what you think is right as a team and then you wait until it comes out and you get the ratings whereas we're putting something out on the internet social media a blog post anything you make it you put it out and then literally one second later you get the the first someone literally writing first yeah. as a comment <laughs> <laughs> and then you can have feedback on it and you can yeah. do you can test these things and i think most people don't like if you like making high-end stuff and you've been involved in some incredibly high production uh programs and things like that so you get used to this level of everything being polished or like you know to such a high level when you make your own content and put it out you like you said you want it to be perfect you want to do all these things and then you see someone who's doing none of it and they're <laughs> yeah. they're making five times the amount of content because they don't have to edit it the editing takes 10 minutes or whatever mm. not three hours and then they can film every day and you see that the audience the audience loves it the, almost the the more low rent it is your production is that's like an added kudos yeah, well, I think it's more real, isn't it? It was perceived as more real. I think that's real. a huge part of it. And uh, which, uh, funnily enough, we have worked occasionally on our Smith & Sniff videos with um, uh, a guy that Johnny shoots a lot with on other stuff mm. called Mark, who, who um, filmed a couple of things with us. And, and he was always like, look, I've thought about how I'm going to do the cameras and I'm going to do it a little bit differently because I want so you can't see the cameras in each other's yeah. shots, which is the standard sort of pro telly way of doing yeah. it. But I'd always gone, I don't care about that because yeah. that does actually fit. I, I was like, I don't want to try and deceive the viewer that we're not like, yeah. it's weird. Cause I always said to Johnny, it was like, I, on the one hand, this works best when it is just us talking and it feels like the viewer is eavesdropping on two people yeah. on a car journey, which, you know, it's, it, it was really. And, uh, but that I don't mind seeing the cameras because, it's just that feels more real. We're not trying to pretend mm. that we're not being filmed, but equally 
hopefully we're talking as if we're not being filmed. I know that sounds like it's completely contradictory, but, but yeah, I never got too bothered about seeing the cameras in shot because I just thought it, it was, it was honest and real. And also it's easier to do because conceiving exactly. cameras sometimes a bit of a pain in the ass because they've got a blinking red light on them. So I'm sorry. My dog is just shouting at something downstairs. <laughs> if you can hear that, she's, she's a hairy idiot, but I quite Did like Did you her. go on? When there's like a Top Gear or a Grand Tour show, special, anything, are you out there with them? Uh, sometimes. Not all the time. So I, yeah, I went on a fair few things. It depends what it was. Mm. Um, but so, yes, it's a bit of a vague answer, isn't no, it? That's fair. But it's, no, it's, it's, but yeah, not all no. the time. Just because sometimes it was like, I mean, for example, uh, I was supposed to go on the Middle East special and having read all the background research and the risks of things like landmines and random <laughs> shootings and IUDs, I was like, yeah. I don't like the sound of this very much. It sounds a bit rubbish. And, but I was still supposed to go. And also I'd been asked by the producers of Top Gear US if I would go out to Los Angeles to go to do some ideas, brainstorming with them mm. at the same time. And Andy Wilman, our executive producer, had said, no, no, you're going to have to tell him no because I need you on the Middle East special. Mm. And then it was realised that there were a lot of border crossings and a lot of complicated border crossings across your know, sort of politically sensitive yeah. frontiers. And it would be better if we kept the crew to an absolute bare minimum and so Andy had a list of people that he was looking down and going, right, okay, who could we live without? And and he just turned around to me and and I went, yeah, I don't need to go. I don't need to go at all, mate. I don't need to go. And he went, no, 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 I, I think I still need you. And I was like, I don't think you do. And then he kept looking at the list and he went, fine, go on then, fuck off to LA. <laughs> so I did. And it was much nicer. I mean, obviously still a high chance of getting shot, but at least yeah. it's... um at least you can get an in and out burger while you're there. So yeah, there was that, that, that kind of thing where I, I wouldn't go because it's just an added expense and complication to have someone who, you know, I think I was often quite a nuisance on a shoot because I'm just hanging around. It's like if the script as such as it is, is done, then there shouldn't be a need there. But what I think sometimes the presenters quite liked was having another brain there because those ones out in the field sometimes things would happen and they'd be like, right, what do we do now? You know, what what should we be doing? What angle should we have on this that is going to yield the most things? So it's like, okay, his car's broken down. Do we forget that car and he gets in with him or is that, do, do we, you know, so you're just trying to sort of work this stuff out. And um, and sometimes it was good just to have another editorial brain there that, that wasn't sort of tied up in, because the director's yeah. worrying about shots and the crew, obviously, for trying to film stuff. And researchers and producers are sort of thinking ahead down the line, all sorts of everyone's got a job to do and so you sort of it helps just have somebody who's just there to be sort of hanging out with the presenters going hey what about if we did this so that was sort of my job on shoots all the time either yeah, that or just step in on a take and go um <clears throat> jeremy just to be clear it's actually a 3.7 liter engine i think you said 3.6 and yeah he'd always enjoy that <laughs> Do you have any particularly hairy moments on set in other countries? Um, the we went to Bolivia with that for a special. That was pretty hairy for uh, <laughs> various reasons. So we drove that death road, which was 
genuinely quite frightening. And, but then we also, we'd stayed, I think the first night that we camped, someone had arranged in advance that we could go and sort of basically set camp in this person's field. But it turned out the field was owned by a sort of low level drug baron. And <laughs> he took exception to, I think, the amount of money that we paid to stay there or something. Okay. So he got two sort of his low quality henchmen to just follow us the next day. And whenever we pulled in, they'd be there in this four by four just up the road watching us. And then we stopped to camp for the next night and they were still there. And we were down this sort of track into some forests. And they were at the top of the track just sitting there. And it was, at this point, everyone was a bit weirded out by it. Yeah. And we had this fixer, this local guy who was with us, who was, you know, he was uh, British and quite well spoken, but had lived there for years. And uh, so he, he was our kind of point guy for sorting out problems. Older bloke, big white beard. He was fantastic. And we said, What's this, are those guys? And he went, I'm going to go and have a word with them. And so he went off at the track. <laughs> And he came back about five minutes later and they just drove off. And we went, is that all right? And he went, yes, I just tell them to go away. <laughs> <laughs> really? I think some money might have changed hands because they did go away. It's just, it was so weird. But he, he did have that sort of that bearing about him where he did just make problems go away. But it was still That's quite frightening. Like, so just to be clear, we're being pursued by the henchman of a local drug lord. That's good. Good. Okay. Thanks. And then we, <laughs> and then we find the first stuff to camping for many nights. We got to a small town where we got a hotel booked and it had been a struggle to get there. I mean, it had been bloody awful. And, um, uh, our hotel backed onto a bar and uh, another local drug lord was having a birthday party for his, I think, 18 year old daughter with very loud music. And everyone just wanted to have a shower and go to sleep. And we couldn't because of the loud music. And, and that was all a bit. Um, basically Andy Wilmer went next door and told him to turn the music down and the local <laughs> drug lord told Andy that if he tried to turn the music down, he would kill him. So it was all quite, um, okay, yeah. quite tasty. So yeah, that was, that was a bit hairy, but there's always, I mean, it felt like not that we sort of attracted trouble. And I think one of the things that never sort of gets reported in the heyday of Top Gear, when the newspapers always seem to be like Top Gear in trouble again and blah, 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 and, yeah. or, you know, Richard Hammond's almost died again or something, but it was very rarely reported the amount of effort that went into actually trying to keep everybody safe whilst allowing us to get the editorial that we wanted, which fair credit to the BBC. They, you know, I think we gave them a lot of headaches and we gave them a lot of sticks sometimes, but they had some very good people who were, who were trying to keep us safe while not compromising our ambitions. Yeah. And some very good people in editorial policy who would try and see what we were trying to do when we were trying to be a bit cheeky or get away with something that, I mean, I had a fantastic negotiation once with somebody about the number of swear words we could have in something, but it became really surreal. It was like, okay, well, you can keep the bugger if you lose one of the tits. It's like, <laughs> what kind of conversation is this? It's just strange. Um so yeah, it's, it was, you know, we, we, we were well supported in yeah. our efforts to just push things a little bit for the sake of. One of the things I've, I've always wondered, and I, and I don't know whether you've, you've talked about this before or whatever, the license plate saga in uh, yeah. Argentina I mean, that was, and all that. Do you know what? If I'd have been watching that from the outside, I would have gone, well, that's just typical. That's <laughs> typical of the kind of nonsense those twats try and pull. 
who do they think they are trying to pretend it was an accident? And the absolute honest truth is that was a complete accident. I, I, I have said this before, and I've said it over and over again. I think anyone who ever worked on that show has said it because it was just the most bizarre thing. I mean, apart from anything else, it was too subtle for Top Gear. It, it Top was. Gear that would was... have got like RG1 or something, or <laughs> Belgrano 1. You know, we weren't a subtle show when it came to sort of idiocy like that. And, you know, some of the stuff that we did in that realm, I was never particularly proud of. But Jeremy had a very good sense of of playing to the gallery for things like that. And I yeah. think there was a sort of certain kind of joke that he, even he probably wouldn't have sort of made if it was just trying to amuse his friends. Yeah. But it, But he sort of thought like, I know our audience, our audience will like this. And and not even complete sort of reference to something on a number plate. That's, I mean, we'd have done better. We'd have sat, if yeah. we'd have been doing that, we'd have sat. Jeremy would have gone, boss, I need you. I need your brain. Come here. And we'd have sat down and we'd have gone, right, what is the, the sort of cleverest but stupidest thing we can do on a number plate? We wouldn't have just got... I can't remember what it said now. It was, it, it was, it was like 982 was the number, wasn't it? So it was supposed to be a reference to 1982. And know, it was like, was it like FLK or something like that? FKL, or? that's it. FKL. Yes, it was. Too it was, the, it was the plate that had been on the car. I remember yeah. reading it and being like, this is too, like you said, it's it, from my point of view, it was like, this is way too subtle. Yeah. And, and like not referenced in any way by anyone on the show during the program, mm. which it would have been if it was a yeah. thing because someone would have pointed it out and be like, hey, yeah. your car, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, we've got a great history of that. I mean, there was even stuff. There was there was once, there was a, a, a number plate that Jeremy had an old car he'd bought that was CNT and, and Hammond <laughs> made a sort of little, mm, so you've got yeah. your name on your plate again kind of thing. We would have been unable to acknowledge it because, again, we were not the masters of totally subtle humour in those sort of things. So, yeah, and it's like, but also people who are going, well, of course we've done it deliberately. It's like, but how have we done it deliberately? Did we cone Britain for that number plate? And then by luck, instead of it being fitted to a Sherpa van or a tractor or something, it was on a on a Porsche 928 GT, one of Jeremy's favourite cars. That's a stroke of luck. Because we didn't, you could prove we didn't have the plate transferred onto the car because it was the... The car's original registration. Yeah. I think it had a private plate for a while, but that was the the reg it was assigned when it was new. Um, and the truth of it was, that Jeremy went. The whole premise was it was the celebration of the V8. The V8's on its way out, so mm. we're going to have a last hurrah for a V8. Jeremy said, "I'll have a Porsche 928." And then I remember he he came into the office, I think, and he was talking to the researcher who was finding the cars, and and he said to her, "Actually, I've got a more specific request: 928 GT." because it was my favourite version of that car. And there were two for sale. And one of them, the seller didn't pick up the phone, and the other one was the car that we bought. And uh, our researcher who worked on that, who bought those cars, because she was sort of like, oh, my God, you know, I've got to to look back and make sure, like, Mm. what if we were stitched up or something? And she found the original ad, and the plates were blanked out in the ad. So, And because we were so up against it to get the cars on a boat to get them out to South America... The deal was done over the phone with the seller. And then a Porsche specialist was sent to go and check it over, make sure it was legit. He called the office and went, I've looked at the car. It's good. Shipping company picked it up, stuck it in a container. It went to South America. So no one from our team had been in the presence of that car or seen its reg until they rocked up at, um, <laughs> at the location yeah. in South America. So, yeah, it was an extraordinary thing. But, but as I said, if I had been watching from a distance, I'd have gone, 
well, this is just exactly the sort of stupid, childish, needlessly provocative nonsense that those idiots would get up to. So I can understand why there was a storm, but from the inside, it felt very unfair because it was almost like, look, for once, we're not being knobheads. This is just an accident. But, you know, we had mucked around once too many times, I think, and that was sort of the view of the BBC, I think. They were not quite behind us as much as they might have been. Um, and um, that was a bit was a bit unfortunate. But no, absolutely, yeah. on my heart, Cubs honour, on my children's lives, that was a complete and utter accident. I will fess up to many stupid <laughs> things we did deliberately, but that wasn't one of them. Yeah. One of the things I, I wanted to sort of ask you about is the how the show evolved from earlier days, or let's say with the current three, well, not the current three anymore, and then onto the grand tour of from being a sort of, I would say it used to be like a, a show for someone like me, like a bit of car nerdy type person who likes to see the latest, greatest, whatever car review type thing. And it evolved over time to become this program that everyone would watch. Like my girlfriend wants to watch the Grand Tour. Like she's like, yeah, I watch that. It's entertaining. And taking something that was possibly niche mm. and then making it so that everyone, it's a massive audience everyone watches it around the world that transition like how was that thought about and you know like over well, it time wasn't that's the thing it, it wasn't really a, a calculated thing when we sat in a little room at the beeb in 2002 fretting over how we were going to make this thing work and did it make sense and you know to come from a report in the field back to the studio um, and then do a news segment and have a guest on all this stuff. You know, did it, did it all sort of flow together or was it just this inexplicable jumble of unrelated elements? And we were sort of trying to, trying to work through all of that stuff. And, and it was just, I mean, it was a desperate, desperate struggle to try and get the show out of the door because we messed up a few times in the planning of. We never at any point went, and then I think what we'll do is we'll gradually sort of try and make the car stuff more accessible, more entertaining. You guys can become these three sort of clowns together and your relationship will come to the fore and that's how, and then we'll become a global smash hit. And that's how we'll do it. <laughs> we'll start the show today. It was just very accidental. I mean, bear in mind, we didn't put the three of them together in the field until I think series four. Mm. So there was no, you know, we didn't even plan that right because it was the idea was they're together in the studio and then they each go off on their sort of assignment in the field and then they come back to the studio to discuss it. And it was only belatedly we put them together and went, oh, and that worked quite well, didn't it? We should do more of that. Yeah, that's quite good. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of how little was planned. It was all very <laughs> much sort of happy accidents or things that we sort of went, oh, maybe we should try this. Oh, that's worked quite well. And of course... Richard's accident, for best or worse, you know, it did propel us. It was the sort of, it was the ignition that, um, that got us, I think, into the mainstream a little bit more. I mean, Richard had already crossed over a bit because he was, you know, he was the sort of boy bandy cute one that a lot of women seemed to like. So he pulled in a new audience perhaps already, but then he almost died. And it's like, oh my God, you know, heartthrob Richard Hammond almost dies. And then people are definitely tuning in. And that gave us, a real sort of kick up. But then also, I don't think that that didn't propel us to the sort of global um, success that the show had. 
I think the introduction of YouTube had a big part of that, actually. It was just the right time. I mean, so much of what happened with Top Gear in that era was just such luck and happy accidents and timing, you know, that could never be repeated. And YouTube coming along meant suddenly people in the US and, you know, I don't know, all over the world, I guess, there were people who suddenly could see these little snippets of this show they'd never seen before, but which they were like, what is this? And then... BBC Worldwide started being able to sell the show to more broadcasters in more countries. And so it sort of gradually seeped out there and then became this thing. But it wasn't, there was no plan. And there was no, you know, again, it's like, well, if we just keep at this, guys, hopefully someone will invent a kind of global video platform, which is free to upload to. And then we'll just, you know, we'll let people have a few clips on there and that'll seed our success globally. It didn't didn't happen like that. We just blithered into everything, really. You know, it was uh, it was all very fortunate. And I don't think you could do it again. That's the thing. I think it was just all so yeah. so fortunate. It was just just happened. I noticed the the massive shift from what I would say was like a be a conventional Top Gear episode into specials, mm. and then there was more specials. Well, again, specials not planned. Specials started because we sent them to the US to do um, a story, which was, can you buy a car for less than it would cost to hire one for a, mm. for a two-week holiday in the in Florida? And um, it was we just shot too much for it to, to be a normal sort of two-part item within a show that also yeah. had a track test and had a guest and the rest of it. And there was a lot of sort of, oh, what do we do? Like, what can we do? We can't, can't do it like, oh, it's across two shows. That's just weird. What, what we, and it was actually, well, what if the whole hour was dedicated to it? And there was, there was a bit of, that's a bit self-indulgent, isn't it? Oh, I don't think people stick around for that. Oh, it's too much. And it was a real sort of, let's give this a try, but not sure it's going to work. Um, and that was the prototype special. And of course, you know, now we're into the realm of basically making feature film length shows. But again, an accident really yeah and then well i guess and then top gear sort of stopped mm. grand tour moved over was that uh were you immediately involved involved from the beginning or uh not immediately because i was in a temper with jeremy because i thought what he'd done was out of yeah, order that must have been so i i kind of um yeah I'd stomped off into the woods because I wasn't I wasn't happy with him, which he knows. I mean, this has all been sorted out, but I was yeah I was not happy with him, and um, uh, not that I, he you know he had his own problems to sort out. It's how he come yeah. he come to that situation that ended the show in the first place. Is there's a lot of backstory to it, which is not any great secret. But you know he was sort of going through some troubles in his personal life, and he it came to a head there, and he sorted himself out. And sort of went away and thought very hard about everything and then came back and, and did the Amazon deal. And then he got in touch and we went for a cup of tea and we sort of made friends again. And so they'd already started planning the Grand Tour. And I still wasn't sure that I wanted to do it, quite honestly, because I just thought, well, we've done that. We've been there, we've done that. You know, yeah. we'll never sort of have that wonderful feeling of starting from fairly sort of low point not many viewers making this show that we think is okay but we're just not sure if we're going to get cancelled or whatever and then suddenly going holy shit people watch this i mean i remember once probably sort of it's still fairly early on but when it had this sense that i think people sort of like this on a sunday evening in the summer i'd gone to someone's we'd been to a barbecue in the afternoon 
and we were walking home uh, through the streets near where I lived at the point, at the point in London. And it was a nice evening. People got their windows open, and, and I could hear suddenly our theme tune coming from a couple of people's windows. It was like real people that I don't know are watching this program. Yeah, Never cool. thought about that before. Because viewing figures are just things that exist on a screen or on a piece yeah, of paper. You know, it's like someone says, oh, you know, six million people are watching your show. You go, oh, I can't visualize six million people. It's like, who are they? What are their names? Where do they live? I don't believe it. This could be made up. Who knows? But when you, you sort of just hear the, 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 someone is sitting in their living room watching that show by choice. It's a pretty remarkable thing in a, in a strange sort of way. And, um, and I just thought with the Grand Tour, it's sort of, we've done so many things. Towards the end of Top Gear, I think we were, we were less able to surprise people mm. because once you've sailed a, pickup truck across the English Channel and made a, uh, yeah. an airship out of a caravan and all sorts of stuff. You know, I think the viewer starts to think, well, anything's possible with these pricks because they, they can do it all and risk their lives. And, and so nothing is amazing as it was yeah. once when you sort of go, didn't Top Gear used to sort of go to steam rallies and things and talk about car security? And now look at them. They're, they've built a space shuttle out of a line robbing. What are they on about? It, it just... It, uh, so... Our power to surprise had, had, had ebbed away, and I just I, there was a part of me just thought well, maybe I should move on. I think also, I mean, when was that? Twenty? When did we start doing it? Twenty? Twenty sixteen, I suppose. So, um, yeah, it was. It was. It had been ugh, how many years? Thirteen years? Fourteen years? It's a long time to do a show. TV is yeah. like dog years, you know. I used to say people are still working on Top Gear, and they go, "How long have you been doing that?" I'd be like, "Oh, eight years." And they're like, "Really?" Because if I'd said a thousand. Because yeah. most people in TV bounce around between shows because that's the way the industry works. Yeah. And everyone's freelance and the rest of it. But, um, yeah, so it, I, I was a little bit reticent about during the Grand Tour because I just thought, I don't know that there's what, what we can do anymore. Mm. But then, so I made friends with Jeremy again. I'd always kept in touch with Richard and James in the, in the hiatus. And then I went for lunch with the three of them. And they started telling me what they were planning and what they'd been up to and on the show and all the rest of it. And it was just like, you know, meeting with your mates in the summer when you're a kid and there. And then we cycled down to the old factory and, 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 and Dave broke in and we found a load of old buttons and you'd be like, I didn't see any of this. I missed this. I miss it. Oh, I've got to go and hang out with the gang again. Let's get our bikes out and go and play. And it was sort of like that. I just couldn't not join in because yeah. everybody was out playing again. So they, yeah, they suckered me back in and, uh, uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was hard to resist. Which we, funny enough, I saw them the other day because we had a meeting. I've not been doing much on the Grand Tour because they just, mm. you know, the, the new contract is for th- four specials. They've, they've made one, the boat one, which has been out. And I had nothing to do with that because yeah. it wasn't really scripted and it was boats, which I don't know anything about. So, and then they, they've just, um, there's another one ready to go. Which will okay. be out, uh, not supposed to say, I suppose, but yeah, it'll be out at some point. Be out at some point. <laughs> so, towards the birth of Jesus, I would say, would be a good time to expect it. But, um, the, the next one will be a bit different. And, and, uh, I just went and met up with them to talk about that, doing a bit of work cool. on that one. And, and again, it was nice to see them all. They're uh, infuriating and ridiculous people, but they are, as you could probably guess, they're very good company. Yeah. They're very amusing in a room together because basically what you see on television is sort of, that's it, you know. Yeah. They are just playing exaggerated versions of themselves on TV. So they're always amusing to hang around with, particularly if you haven't seen them for a while because, uh, you know, there's a lot to catch up on. And so. like you said, you've been with this crew for a long time. 
Yeah, it is. It is a long time. I mean, that's it's. Uh, although I've always done other stuff, and uh, and you know, I've I've as I said at the beginning of this show, which I think was a month ago now, but about that um, thirty two days, I heard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was working for Evo before I went back to Top Gear in two thousand two, and I've so I've always worked in some capacity with Evo, and I, I've always sort of had other little bits and pieces. But Top Gear and the Grand Tour has been the sort of biggest project if you like that I've ever mm. been involved with and for almost the longest time and certainly the most sort of immersive because it was I you know I was I was often in the office of almost all the time or on a shoot or what have you and it consumed my 30s you know I started working back on the show when I was 27 I guess and yeah, it all sort of fell apart just after I turned 40 so it's like the whole of my 30s were were basically yeah writing stick intros and stupid <laughs> stupid jokes about fiats and things which i don't know you could consider as a life wasted but i kind of look back on it quite fondly so um yeah it is it is, it is and i suppose it, it will always be a, a quite a big part of my life yeah it's pretty cool pretty cool thing to be involved in definitely like well it's quite i mean it's nice anything when you do anything that uh, any sort of endeavor i suppose you, you and you someone says oh, what do you do and you say well i do this uh, who for you don't have to explain yourself and i say yeah. i'll work on top gear and i would go what's that <laughs> and so it just at least feels and i have done other tv projects where i go oh, what are you up to at the moment and I'm like, oh, well i've just i've just done some some rewrites on this what's that oh it's a thing on don't worry about it no one watches it you can't go i just uh, and uh it is very nice to to be involved with something that you feel like people actually watch and there was a point at which actually i was i think it was after the well i can't remember when this was in the timeline not that it matters but i was watching a documentary about friends and because i was sort of fascinated by it by it and i was thinking god imagine working on a show that's all that long running and that big and then i suddenly thought Shit, I did. <laughs> I mean, I think Friends probably dwarfs Top Gear in terms of its global reach and its, and its, its viewership, but nonetheless, yeah, Top Gear, Top Gear still did, did pretty well for what we always thought of our, in our minds. To the end was this sort of shabby little BBC Two show. You know, we mm. didn't ever think we are the global program Top Gear. We made the show for BBC Two for Sunday evenings for people in the UK, and and if everyone else around the world seemed to to enjoy it, well, that was great. During this period of the lockdown, mm. people have been, and we're sort of at the end of it now. Have you been? What have you been working on project-wise? I know you've you've been writing books. Well, you've written books for a while. Yeah, I did. Well, this was sort of to stave off boredom. Really, I I decided uh, for ages. I've sort of always when I when I heard a really arcane bit of car trivia, whether it's in conversation with somebody at a car event or whether it's something I read in a magazine or a book. Uh, kind of try to remember it either just in my brain or by making a note in my phone or scribbling it on a pad or something like that. Yeah. And I decided to pull together a lot of these and assemble them into a book. Well, I wasn't sure it could sustain a book. And I mean, it is a fairly sort of slim book, but it's, a, but it's like sort of 15,000 words or something. Like it's got enough to be going on with. And it's, I just called it the medium sized book of boring car trivia because I mean, I was going to call it the little book of boring car trivia. And then I thought, oh, people might not buy it if they think it's little. I think it's not <laughs> worth it. So I kind of took a little bit of liberty and said it's medium sized. By what metric? I don't know. But, and, and that was, that kept me occupied, uh, through lockdown, that and sort of looking after the kids. But the good thing about this book is all little chunks of things. So I'd like find an old notepad and it could say something, you know, 
And sometimes the, 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 it would be very confusing what I'd written down. It would just sort of say, Fiat Punto Central Locking, question mark. <laughs> and then underneath it would sort of say MGSV or something. I'd be going, are those related? And I'd start sort of looking around trying to research it. But I could do that in short bursts in between trying to make my children eat their breakfast. Mm. And it was it was quite a good little project for lockdown. Put it out just because Amazon has this fantastic, nothing to do with my my involvement with them on TV stuff, but but Amazon have this self-publishing thing you can do through their website and then you can get a book. They print on demand little paperbacks or That's eBooks. Good. And uh, so I just put it up on Amazon and it's sold few thousand copies now so it's done all right i mean it's actually outsold the worst selling books i've done quite a few books so i used to do a lot of top gear branded books and i've done some yep. books in my own name and so i think this is like my 24th book so and it's That's a lot of books the yeah it is quite a lot of books i mean i did i put them all i was having to clear out because I, I was clearing clearing so i tidy up the bookshelves yeah another lockdown project and i put at the behest of a mate of mine who was messaging me, and he went, if I'd written that many books, I'd put them in a big stack. And I was like, I've never done that. So I put them in a big stack and took a picture and sent it to yeah. him. And then he was like, you're just showing off now. But <laughs> I I was like, there's a lot of shit here. That's the thing. There's a lot of like <laughs> leave by the loo kind of books, which is fine. Somebody's got to write these things, but there's not exactly like the great American novel in there. I did one book which came out, bad timing. It was a Top Gear branded book that came out just after the show had sort of been cancelled or paused. Mm in the light of what Jeremy did in 2015. And it, as a result, I think this book absolutely tanked by sort of the standards of the Top Gear books we used to do, which yeah, sometimes yeah. would sell sort of hundreds of thousands of copies. So this one did about 3,000, which is not great. And my my self-published book of boring car trivias <laughs> sold more than that quite comfortably, so I'm quite proud of that now. It's not the worst-selling book I've ever done, fact. Um, and in fact, I think I'm pro- I have have sort of half done another one ah. which i will get around to finishing at some I had, point i had a look at the medium-sized book of boring car trivia it's available on kindle unlimited i don't know whether you know yes this. it will be yeah if you've um, got that and so i had a little browse through and i have to say it is exactly what it says on the tin i, I read you. it for a little bit um, and then i got to a certain point and was like yeah i think this bit of trivia is too boring for me i'll, I'll come back to this later <laughs> Good. That's the um, thing. There was no bar on this. The bar was was not just low. The bar well, had been kicked to the floor. I had a question from um, from someone on Twitter. You, you probably have come across this guy, Tom N. Tom N. Nineteen ninety four, and he said, "What bo- what boring car trivia didn't make it into the book because it was either too dull or deemed inappropriate." <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. The only things that didn't make it in were things where I couldn't make it stand up. Okay. So there's there's almost like there's a kind of gold standard of car nerd trivia, which is about the Renault 21, if you remember those, the saloon and estate from the 80s. And there was a bizarre quirk with that car where the smaller engine ones had a crossways engine and then the larger engine ones, the engine was mounted lengthways for very boring gearbox-related mm. reasons. But this led to a different uh, wheelbase length, okay. <laughs> depending <laughs> on which engine configuration was in. But then... The stop me if I'm boring you. The oh, um, the estate version was longer wheelbase than the saloon. So when you add it all up, there were four different wheelbase lengths because <laughs> wow. there were crossways saloons and then estates and lengthways engine saloons and then estates. So you've got four different wheelbases in one model, and that's a kind of 
That, that, that's cropped up before. It's sort of, if you are a super, super carnard, that one is inverted commas well known. And I was going to put it in the book nonetheless for those who may not know it. Yeah. But then I, I, somebody, I think I might have mentioned on Twitter and somebody went, actually, I think the four wheel drive versions had a slightly different wheelbase again. And I was like, <laughs> Oh no, well, I can't. That's the only thing. I, I, I lived in fear that there would be a fact in this book that would be wrong. That yeah. somebody would go, this is incorrect. And thank <laughs> God, so far, nobody has been in touch and said, you're talking out your ass, mate, on any, on any fact, uh, which is a relief. But I, I was terrified. If I put this Renault 21 fact in and then it wasn't, mm. it was absolutely watertight, the shame, my nerd <laughs> shame would be too great. So, um, so I didn't put it in because I couldn't find out for sure if this was true that the four wheel drive ones had a slightly different you know I still haven't managed to find it out. I also couldn't find out, funny enough, not that it's all Renault 21 trivia, but the estate version was called the Nevada in all countries except Britain, where it was called the Savannah. And I was convinced that that was because the US state of Nevada had trademarked their own name in English speaking countries. And right. I was convinced I'd read this somewhere, but I couldn't find it. And I've got, you can't really see, I'm in my little office at home here, and I've got a big load of magazines down yeah. behind me from the 80s onwards. And I was going through all these mags from the 80s going, it must be in here somewhere. I read it. I read it somewhere. And I couldn't find it. So it couldn't go in the book because I couldn't substantiate it. And so the only things that didn't make it in were, yeah, were sort of half-remembered stuff that I couldn't back up mm. or things where, yeah, in some way or other, it was just, it felt like there were too many conflicting sources. So it just, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a solid enough fact. But no, boredom, boredom was never a, a quality control issue because this is very arcane i mean I, i'll be honest i sort of almost delighted in putting some of the really obscure ones in because yeah, yeah i i just sort of feel like there are more people out there who enjoy this stuff you know what i I, I, I have this vision now of there's going to be someone there's going to be one person eventually who will sit there and they will be fact-checking <laughs> every single fact until Best they get of to, luck like, to them if there's another lockdown 42 first oh, three this is incorrect i've had um i have had a couple of people point out typos in it so actually if you buy oh. it now you're getting the uh the new non-typo edition oh. because the other lovely thing about the amazon system is that you know rather than the old model of printing a warehouse yeah. full of books and then hoping they sell this is print on demand so you can re-upload the manuscript to your book if you have corrections to make and it is is now a second edition uh oh, so nice. you can fix typos and spare it's your quite good. blushes there so it's quite good is it do they do they take quite a brutal cut um is they it? it's not i wouldn't say it's brutal it's i thought it feels quite fair yeah. i mean it's just a different way of doing things because the thing is ultimately you probably get more per book than you would with a traditional publishing model. But yeah. with a traditional publishing model, you get an advance, which is the lump of money you would yeah. get up front. And then your cut from each book sale has to pay that off. So it's quite rare that you see royalty checks from books. A lot of books just never, never clear the advance. Uh, and with this, you don't get the money up front, which, you know, would, is intended to cover your I suppose yeah, your, yeah. your expenses while you're writing the book, you don't get that. But this was a kind of hobby to stave off lunacy. So that's fine. Uh, and then you do start seeing some money back as soon as someone buys a copy. And it's not, 
you know, it's not a life-changing amount of money, but it's... It seems uh, like a very good way of going about it. It's like- it's brilliant for stuff like this. It really is, because I could have gone to a publishing. I, I've got, having done books at different places over the years, I've got enough contact in publishing. I do I do have a book agent, you know, so I've, yeah. got, I've been quite grown up about that. And I could go out there and go, right, I've got this book. I want to sell it. I want to sell it out there to the highest bidder. And, and what would actually happen is, you know, a year later, someone would go, we'll give you £500 for it. <laughs> And I just, it's like, this was, this felt like it was a product of the moment. I wrote it because of the unusual circumstances we all found ourselves in. I felt like it might be appreciated by people who like car trivia in the unusual circumstances that we're in. It, it, it was, speed was of the essence and it, it wasn't about the money. It was about just doing it, amusing myself, hopefully amusing other people. Uh, and it's perfect for that. Absolutely brilliant. I would highly recommend it if you have some kind of thing you want to get off your chest, but you don't want to embarrass yourself by going to a proper publisher and yeah. then going, why are you doing this? I, li- I, lo- I like the idea like of whatever it is, put it together and then someone, just someone else deals with it and then you get paid if it sells, if you don't you know, you don't have all of the extra stuff that you've got. Well, I mean, that, I suppose that's the other downside that proper publishers have people who do layouts and worry about all yeah. that stuff. There's a bit of fiddle if you want to do it properly because it's all up to you, but it's not impossible. And, and they have these online guides to help you. And then, you know, you've got to market it yourself because proper publishers also have marketing yeah. budgets and they will try and get. But then their interests. Yeah. My experience of different publishers is that they're, you know, the, the different amounts of oomph they put behind stuff. And sometimes you get into that classic situation where you find yourself sort of going, well, the book would have sold better if it had been marketed better, <laughs> which I think probably all authors do. No, it would have sold Without acknowledging that the book better. maybe was crap. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but that's fine. You know, this is the wonderful world of social media in, in the same way that, you know, there are lots of YouTube people talking about cars now. It's very democratic. If you've got something to say, you can go and do it. There's no barrier to entry, yeah. really as long as you can record yourself on something and it's the same with this if you've got an idea for a book you can get it out there and if no one buys it well you've learned that no one else is interested and in that respect it's it's you know there are no barriers to entry so it's 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 a wonder of of the age in which we live no it's 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 cool right well we we've we've got a good old waffle on today um, Sorry, that's my I don't know, It's been good, and and as you know, as we discussed, I end these podcasts or sort of wrap them up with five questions, which is weird. When I actually look at my six, my list, there are six, so that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> but there are five, so I'll give you five. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? It's funny because see, I I cheated. Well, is it cheating? I listened to it's not cheating. some previous episodes of your podcast, you, so I knew about these questions. researcher and, here. Well, I was <laughs> thinking about this and it's it's odd because i keep coming back to one journey which which sounds in a way quite mundane which was driving off the brecon beacons down into brecon itself in in wales mm. in a, a land rover defender 110 uh, uh many summers ago when i was uh supporting some friends who were doing a thing called the thunder walk which is a 24-hour walk across across wales and um i had Applied them with tea and snacks at the last, the evening stop at sort of seven in the evening on a, on a lovely summer's evening. Mm. And then they were walking off into the night and I wouldn't see them again until like one in the morning at an agreed checkpoint. So I had a bit of time to myself and I drove and it was a wonderful, and anyone who knows that part of the world knows how staggeringly beautiful it can be. And particularly when a sort of soft evening light is playing across those hills and the road winding down, it was clear. It's, it's, it's a nice, but not exceptional road. And I was in a car that's not really what anyone would consider to be a fine handling sports car. But it was just the perfect 
coming together. A car I love, though, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, in a, an area that I love and on a beautiful evening, I've got my music on, I've got you know, music that I love on. And, and I was going down to Brecon to go and get some fish and chips for my supper and mm. I could not have been more content it was just wonderful and then whenever I saw what's your favourite drive and it's like oh yeah, I've driven across Scottish borders in a 458 Stradale and <laughs> down the Pacific Coast Highway in a Corvette and I've done some incredible things but I just keep coming back to that as a moment of perfect contentment which kind of proves that it's not always about the car and the yeah. ultimate handling capabilities it's about circumstance and you know and I was always with my mates and we got the weekend away it's just perfect no it's, it sounds like a good one and it's it's why I think it's it's an interesting question, and I've had so many different answers. I, I have had the it was a LaFerrari and the blah 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 blah. <laughs> I've had that one, but like like you, you said, mo- the majority are like a combination of the right people, right place, right time of life, whatever. Whether it was a road trip with your mates and just like something that really stuck out, and and those are it's that thing of like the car doesn't necessarily matter. No. I think for most people, it's it's, it's 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 bigger than that. It's what the car gives us. Yeah, is, is and who we're sharing it with. More complex. Right. Next question: five car garage. Yeah. Now again, you see, this is, and, and I already had to do a list for this because a friend of mine, um, a, a former colleague uh, called Joe Berry, is doing a podcast called Five Car Garage. Ah, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and he'd asked me to go on it, and then we had some technical yeah. problems, and I never actually got to do it. But he'd asked me to do my list. And it was changing up until the moment when we started going to record, yeah. ill-fated recording. Uh, and it changes every every few minutes. minutes. So, But what I will say is that I, I think the, the one bedrock is a 997 GT3 RS. I think that's my favourite car as a pure sort of driving mm-hmm. experience. So that's a banker. I would struggle not to put, because I now have a Land Rover Defender uh, 90 Heritage, one of the last special editions that they made yeah. sort of retro green and i have one of those and it's old-fashioned and stupid and absolutely idiotic car for someone who lives in london to have and i, I just adore it i can't explain why it's yeah. crap in so many normal metrics but it's it is almost because it's so different to any other car that i get to mess around in other cars occasionally but when i come back to that it's just like a reset because it's like nothing else yeah and I love it. So I think I'd have to keep my Defender. And then it all gets a bit tricky. So I'd, I'd say I, we have our family cars, a Jaguar I-Pace. So I'm a big mm-hmm. convert to electric power. I'm not, I always struggle with classics a bit. I like the idea of them. And I always think, well, would I actually use anything old? It feels yeah. like my Land Rover gives me the sense of driving an old car, but it's actually <laughs> still, you know, relatively new. So bits aren't worn out. But what I've always wanted well, for a long time I've wanted is to combine. It's like, okay, I have a classic, I have an electric car, but what about a Citroen DS converted to electric power? That would be quite, that, that would probably be quite good. Well, nobody ever says the engine in the DS is brilliant, do they? So just no. get rid of that. And also it's got that otherworldly futuristic feel to it anyway. So it's just sort of swishing around in electric yeah. DS. Brown, I think. And, and But you could do some fun stuff with the interior as well. I don't know. Just Although they're, they're pretty groovy to start with. So yeah, an electric DS would be there. And then I was wondering, did I need another sports car? And this morning I suddenly went, oh, do you know what? I just did an Elise and that, that quite low powered Elise. There was, a, I think it was a 135 horsepower Toyota engine, engine mm. Elise that I drove once on an Evo car of the year. That I just thought was absolutely fantastic. It was everything that you sort of hope Elises are. And we had an Exige there as well, which was supercharged and much faster. And I actually preferred the Elise. I just thought it was just a nicer thing. So I think I'm going to chuck that in there. 
Yeah. And then I kind of need a family car. So your your DS. DS would do the not. job, wouldn't it? But then so would the... So would, um, all of them would do the, it. The Land Rover. And obviously I'm having the seats put in the Touringized yeah, GT3 yeah. RS. So loads of family options. But nonetheless, I don't know. I, I, I quite enjoyed it because I, lis- I listened to Matt Farrer on this and he so emphatically just went, Range Rover. And I, and I kind of knew what he meant. I think I might have a Range Rover. There's something about them that you there can't... There is something about them. They're just very pleasant cars. Everything feels a bit better when you're in a Range Rover. So... I've said these quickly, so I can't change my mind while I'm saying Fair them because I feel like there was. If I've got because I look in my phone, I'll tell you the only the one that I know I'm now making is a six car garage, but you've got <laughs> six questions for five questions, so I'm calling your bluff. The um, the only the one that I, I'm struggling to find a, a space for that I really wanted to was uh, I used to have an old Jaguar XJR steel bodied one, an X308. If you're a Jag nerd. I absolutely no loved that car. It's the one car I regret selling. So I kind of I wanted to squeeze that in there. I realised in my notes on my phone for five car garage when I was trying to do Joe's podcast, I've written as one of my other options is just say sod it. I'll have five Group B cars, please. <laughs> Six R4, RS200, Delta S4, 205T16, and a Quattro Sport, so, please. So the last person I did a podcast with was a guy called Larry Chen. You come across yes. him? Yes, He's I heard him. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and he, his five car garage was themed... And I'd never come across, I'd never even remotely thought about the idea of a theme. And it, mm-hmm. one of the ones we talked about, it wasn't the one he went with, but was like homologated road cars. And I was like, okay, yeah, that, yeah. Like there's just so many, like so it's many basic, very similar from. to your Group B route. I just but, don't know which one would be the family car though. Maybe have some seats yeah. put in the back of the 6 yeah. r yeah, Not sure. It's, anyway. Yeah, I'd love to do that. But, yeah. Come home to my wife and go, good news, dear. I've, uh, I've sold the iPace and your new way of getting to work is a Ford RS200. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't try and set off with any steering lock on because the tra- transmission winds up and you will stall it. Trust me. Anyway, so there we go. Sorry, that, I'll, I'll stop on five next, cars. Next question. One car, rest of your life, you're allowed 500 pound beater on side. Um, I mean, that one's really hard, isn't it? That's just like, it's tough to my life. Is it my life as it is now? Like, is this, do I sort of live where I live? And You sort of live where you, yeah, yeah. Okay. You could, you could do a slight, like, projection forward of where you think you might be and whatever, but like, <laughs> okay. yeah. I live on the moon. But you're still not paying for this car, so. Okay. I don't uh, know. I mean, well, then I'll just have a McLaren F1 or a Veyron or something or a Chiron and just park it on the street in North London. Just be a Which price. I always thought if I won the lottery, you know, it's like you win a million quid in the lottery rather than going, I'll invest some of it and I'll put some of it over the drums going, no, screw it. I'm going to buy a Veyron. <laughs> buy a Veyron. Then everything else in my life is the same, but I have a Veyron. It's true. That's, that's where my lottery money went. So I might just do that and see what happens. I, I have, I always think it's very cool. And I don't know whether I, I would struggle to do it, but you're walking around parts of London and you see certain streets or like, there's always like one house. There's one house and I believe it's owned by a very wealthy Nigerian man. And it always has unbelievable cars outside. Like 177 parked on the street. Like it, all the cars, it always just seemed to be Parked on the street, Crow GT, McLaren Center, or whatever. Well, that, like that's, I mean, that's 300 SL. That's the way to do it. Like to be comfortable enough to be okay with just park, just accepting that this is the situation. Yeah, oh, I um, think that's that's the way to do it. That's a wonderful way to do it. I was just telling me your battery's running out. Yeah, my laptop battery's about to go, and I've got one of those annoying computers where you can't plug a mic and a power cable in. Ah. 
Thanks, okay. Tim well, Cook. <laughs> <laughs> You've never not, okay. I've, I've spent years, I've had this computer for a while, and people go, isn't that annoying? I go, no, it's never a problem. Never Until now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but it's good because I've talked for too long, so I should wrap this up. But yes, well, got, anyway, I think like I'm just going to have a Veyron and park it on the street and Fair see play. It, where it goes. Most undervalued car at the moment. Undervalued? Um, I don't know, because I spend my time looking at stuff that I always feel like is overvalued, usually old 911s. But um, there's some stuff, isn't it? I always feel like sort of old British stuff that has a bad rep. Triumph stags never get very expensive relatively, do they? And it's like if they were Italian, I think they'd be worth a lot more. Mm. The Alpha SZ always felt like it was undervalued for a while. They seem to be going up now a bit. BMW Z1s as well. It felt like they sort of just sat at 20 grand for ages and you sort of went, surely more people are interested in those. These are literally cars. I'm cars like, I'm like, what is that? Oh, sorry, I've <laughs> gone a bit. Also, just like an old Rover P6, you know, they're not silly expensive. And they're, or Rover P5, you know, they're very stately old cars. And mm. there's not many of them around in the V8 coupe spec that you'd probably want. And yet they're sort of nine grand or something. And you go, really? It feels, feels unjust somehow. So yeah, that's the kind of stuff where I always think. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of value down there. If you can get a car that's still running and not falling apart and whatever. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's, 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 exactly. <laughs> that's the tricky bit. Okay, most interesting car to you at the moment? I mean, honestly, it, it, the car that I'm absolutely fascinated with at the moment to the point that it's it's strange, and even I will admit it's strange, is the Mark 1 Toyota Yaris. I want everyone listening to this to go around <laughs> your town or city or wherever you live, look how many Mark 1 Toyota Yarises there are. It's insane. <laughs> I've just become obsessed because I've got a dog. So I, I walk the dog around our local area and I run around here yeah. and stuff. And once you've tuned into it, you kind of go, there's another one. They're like they're 20 year old cars. You know, it's like, I know cars last a lot better than they, they used to, but yeah. oh my God, there's a lot. And you just go, I'm sort of to the point where I just want to go and buy one to see what it's like. <laughs> what I remember thinking they were all right at the time, but I'm like, how are there so many about? It's, it's, and, and some are scruffy, some are immaculate, but they're there. I, I I defy you now to not notice I, that and the Nissan Almera. They're everywhere. <laughs> it's amazing that how you, you can tune out of cars and then tune back in mm. and you suddenly notice it and you're suddenly like, whoa, it's like, I've seen 10 of these today yeah. and, it, and, and it before then spooky. I've seen none. Where are they all coming from? Are they still making them? <laughs> yeah. I just didn't know they're making them still and putting them on old regs, but no, Is they're everywhere. Is a dealer who keeps just fascinated. parking cars around here? Yeah. <laughs> I've, uh, there, I've got a story about that, but I won't tell you now about uh, a, a car getting dumped uh, in front of one of our neighbours' houses. But she's the one person who hates people parking outside her house, and oh. someone left a Honda Jazz outside her house. And I was just like, <laughs> "This is wonderful," because about this, I started thinking she'll probably think I did it. I didn't, <laughs> but I thought about doing it again when the Jazz got towed away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me on. Sorry for talking so much. No, it's been good. Spinkies. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.